1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: Bright red blood on the knife blade. The knife in my hand. Duffy's dead body stretched out on the locker room floor. And to cap it all, that's when Carbury opens the door. I, I didn't do it. I said weakly. And England didn't win the World Cup in 66, he sneered. I put the knife down. Even then, it occurred to me that my prints were on the handle. It was half past ten in the morning. What started as just another Monday had suddenly turned pear-shaped. I'll give the police a bell, Carbury said. There was a crooked smile on his lips. Eddie Carbury was enjoying this, Duffy was dead, there was blood everywhere, even on my hands and Eddie Carberry was enjoying it all. This was his big chance, me inside on a charge of murder, Carberry's caretaker manager, a run of good results and he gets my job, which he's always wanted and expected to get when the last guy got the old hefo after the boardroom takeover. Soon I was surrounded by members of the club, nothing much was said. Some of them touched me lightly on the shoulder, letting me know they were in sympathy with me. I smiled weakly, but was unable to utter a single word, either of explanation or in my defence. What I didn't know then was that I was in deep shock. When a manager's top striker is murdered, and the manager's found with a weapon in his hand, it's no time to start singing, we're on our way to the Premiership. I had, quite literally, been caught red-handed and the guy who found me was an implacable enemy. I think I'd better fill in some of the background, much of this you'll already know. I was born and brought up in the northeast. my father was a fitter and my mother a housewife who took a series of home help jobs to make ends meet. We were poor, the whole area was poor in those days. The docks had closed down, there was no work, strong men with skills idled their time in betting shops or gossiping down at the social club over half a pint of bitter ale. With kids to care for, and hard times for everybody, my parents didn't have much to offer us. I'm not complaining. It wasn't a bad childhood. There was happiness and love in the family, it's just that we were poor. We were all soccer mad, I was no different. From as early as I can remember, I was kicking a ball about. Sometimes it was an old tennis ball, sometimes a football. We all had our heroes, some from the past, some more recent. Jackie Milburn, Bobby Robson, Jack and Bobby Charlton, Brian Robson, Alan Shearer, Paul Gascoigne, the list goes on and on. What I never guessed, even in my wildest dreams and like any other soccer crazy boy, I had my share of dreams, what I never guessed was that one day I'd make the top grade. We all had our heroes, some from the past, some more recent, Jackie Milburn, Bobby Robson, Jack and Bobby Charlton, Brian Robson, Alan Shearer, Paul gascoigne the list goes on and on. What I never guessed, even in my wildest dreams, and like any other soccer crazy boy I had my share of dreams, what I never guessed was that one day I'd make the top grade. My dad knew I had the skills but he looked on soccer as a chancy way to make a living. In some ways he was right, he told me to get a trade. Alex Ferguson was a shipyard welder, get a tree at first dad told me and maybe make a bit from football too, he wanted me to be a plumber, that would complement his skills as a fitter, there would be all sorts of jobs we could tackle together, Barnes and son, fitters and plumbers, in the end it was soccer that claimed all my attention and it still does, I wanted to be a striker, maybe every boy does, I saw myself slotting in the winning goal at Wembley against Brazil or Argentina to snatch the World Cup for the country. A PE teacher at school made me change my mind. You're a defender Steve, he said. You've got the shoulders of an ox, you're tall and you can move fast. I was never just a stopper. That isn't how modern football is played. Defence isn't a matter of putting the ball into the stands. It's about blunting their attack and moving straight onto the offensive. I remember the days when centre forwards used to lounge about upfield during a period of defence waiting for a high ball to be delivered to him. That's changed, and changed utterly. Nowadays you'll find Alan Shearer on the goal line, heading clear when the keeper has been left stranded. Every member of the side is an attacker and a defender. That's one of the important facets of the modern game I instil in my squad on the training ground. Well, if soccer skills had been the only thing at school, I'd have been a scholar. As it was, PE was my best subject. I managed a good GCSE in English, which is why I can tell you this story now. Your brains are all in your feet, lad, the English teacher told me. I was determined to prove him wrong. That may be why he said it. Teachers have to motivate the kids. It's the same being a manager. Motivation is the name of the game. So I became a defender, I was young and strong and knew how to read a game, I played for the school team even when in junior form. On Saturdays I turned out for the youth club team, I'd like to think that scouts came along to matches almost by chance and spotted my talents, but it wasn't like that. My dad was active on my behalf, he got in touch with club scouts and invited them to come along and have a look at what he called this young prospect. He didn't say the young prospect was his son. As luck would have it, I played for teams that did well locally. At the age of 15, I went to St James Park for a trial. Playing for Newcastle United was my dream. Me and thousands of others in the North East, it wasn't to be. I played my heart out, but they didn't make me an offer. I started my professional career with Gurlington City. Not a fashionable side, but it was an excellent apprenticeship. Anyway, enough of that. Here I was, at the age of 38, first team coach of Ledesford Town. I'd been in the job a matter of a couple of months. My first post as player manager was with Threshfield United. My job was to get the side back into the Premier Division where everybody in the city said they belonged. There was a major problem. The usual problem. Lack of money for new players. That meant a youth policy and maybe three or four years before I could even claim success, that directors wanted success this season. So they wanted the impossible. So when I was headhunted by Lettersford and the owner of the club was a millionaire, there was a promise of money for players. i jumped at the opportunity. Who wouldn't? There was a short list of five candidates for the post. I went for the final interview brimming with confidence. I felt sure that if I could impress Sir Lawrence, the owner, he would carry the others with him, and I was right. I went for Pat Duffy right away, I'd watched him play several times when I was still with Threshfield. He was only 16 years old and yet he played like a man of mature years. The boy was a sensation, off and on the ball, I reckoned he'd played for the Republic of Ireland before he was 18. He was the new Ryan Giggs, the Irish Joe Cole, no doubt he'd moved to a top premier club for a big transfer fee. Unless we at Lettersford could climb out of the rock and into the Premier division ourselves. So this is our rising young star, Sir Lawrence said to me one day. Sir Lawrence Brook, our chairman and owner. He called me off the training ground where we were planning a number of strategies. I was still player manager and although I didn't turn out for the first team anymore, I sometimes turned out for the reserves and regularly got stuck in with the lads during training sessions. He's a good young prospect, I said, echoing my father's words about me. When will he be ready? Sir Lawrence asked. Not for a while yet, I said. He needs to put on some muscle. He certainly seems to have what it takes already, Sir Lawrence said, smiling with the satisfied assurance of a guy with millions of books in the bank. He's not ready, I said. He'll be kicked off the park. They didn't kick John Charles off the park, Sir Lawrence reminded me. John Charles, Leeds United and Wales, equally brilliant as striker or central defender. He was as strong as a bull and had brains to go with his strength and skills. At that moment Duffy hit a high volley and the ball rocketed into the back of the net. Even other members of the squad started to clap their hands in appreciation and hey you don't get that too often during a training session. If I were selecting the team, Sir Lawrence continued in his quiet, carefully modulated English, I think I'd be giving him the chance to prove himself at least for half a match. I heard his words and got his message. In his own subtle way the chairman was telling me about team selection. Well I listen to advice, only a fool ignores good advice. I listen to those who were at Lettersford before me and know the squad better than I do. People like Eddie Carberry. And I've talked to the team skipper, Martin Thornton, who's as dependable in defence as the Rock of Gibraltar. I even listened to Sir Lawrence Brooke. After all, he's an astute guy, university educated, respected in the business world. He knows about economics, finance, government policies, but, you know, he doesn't understand soccer in the way players and managers understand the game. So, while I'm prepared to listen to advice from all quarters, I still think the best advice comes from hardened professionals. And even when I've heard the advice, I'm the one to make the final decisions. In that respect, it is lonely being a manager. I bought Pat Duffy for a song. He had an agent, his uncle, and he could see that Duffy was a serious prospect, but young Duffy didn't have the track record for the agent to hold out for a very large sum. I couldn't lose. I bought the lad for a song. He would help us in various ways in our push for promotion. I was realistic. It would take at least a couple of years. Success is rarely purchased overnight. And if we didn't make it into the top flight after a couple of seasons, I could always sell to the young player for a big profit. That should please Sir Lawrence Brook and the accountants. Soccer has always been a business, of course, but now it's very big business and owners, accountants and... Shareholders like to see healthy profits, in fact they insist on profits and if these are not forthcoming someone bites the dust, that someone is usually the manager. Think of the players you know who never made it in management, the list is longer than your arm. The weekend had been quiet, we didn't have a game on the Saturday, it was a Friday evening fixture at home and we won. It had been a scrappy game and a single goal decided it. What worried me was the fact that our regular striker, Jimmy Lawson, had missed three sitters and a penalty kick. In the short time I'd been with the club, he proved that he wasn't in the top class and needed to look for a better striker. On his day, Jimmy Lawson was good enough for a team in the lower divisions, but he was unreliable in terms of his form. I know full well that a forward can't convert every chance. But that isn't the nature of the game or even of life itself but consistency is a quality that a good player needs and Lawson lacked it. I was quickly to learn the reason why I needed to look for a better striker. On his day Jimmy Lawson was good enough for a team in the lower divisions but he was unreliable in terms of his form. I know full well that a forward can't convert every chance. That isn't the nature of the game or even of life itself but consistency is a quality that a good player needs and Lawson lacked it. I was quickly to learn the reason why. I tried to lie in an extra hour Saturday morning. I woke at the usual time of 7 o'clock and tried to get back to sleep but failed. So I went to the gym, did a bit of work with the small weights, stretched a lot, went on the rowing machine and altogether spent a pleasant hour, exercise, a good shower, shave, dressed in casual gear and I was ready for a relaxing weekend. Oh, did I say relaxing? My wife insisted we go shopping. She wanted to go to the Trafford Centre. I tried to dissuade her. My face is too well known both from the days when I played with Mulcaster United and now as the bright hope of Sir Lawrence Brook and everyone at Ledersford. Complete strangers approached me and talk as if they've known me all my life. I always try to be polite. Public relations is, after all, an important part of the football business, but it gets a bit wearisome after a while. Everybody, no matter how high profile they might be, needs a measure of privacy. And this Saturday morning was no exception. People came up to me and called me Steve. Some wanted my autograph. Some wanted to talk about players and a few even had the cheek to tell me which team to select for the next town game. So you see, Sir Lawrence was not the only one to interfere. He of course was always very subtle. He never actually told me to select a certain player, not even young Pat Duffy. But insinuations and suggestions, especially from the boss, can be very persuasive. In the afternoon we went for a run in the country. We took the children with us. I'm always conscious that I don't see as much of the kids as I would like. Travelling across the country to games, a long day with Lettuceford, the rest of the week, well, it doesn't leave much quality time with the family. We drove into the Pennine Hills, parked the car in a small village, a church, a post office, a pub, and went for a walk in bright sunshine. The weekend passed quickly. Monday morning came round all too soon. By 8 o'clock, I was on the M62, the Trans Pennine Motorway heading east from Cheshire. I leave home early because there's always lots of work to do. Julie has my mail sorted and I dictate most of my answers. Julie has good shorthand skills. She's a pleasant young woman. Not as young as she once was but she has a good figure and the blonde highlights in her brown hair make her look more attractive. She's indispensable when it comes to dealing with my diary and the mailbag. Because I get there before the squad, who usually drive straight to the training ground out of town. It was a surprise when I bumped into young Pat Duffy. He was standing in the doorway of one of the VIP suites. You're here bright and early, Pat, I said. Yes, sir, he said in his reserved and polite way. There was a faraway look in the lad's eyes. What's the trouble, son? I asked. I expected him to say that some girl had jacked him in and he couldn't live without her sure it's nothing sir, Pat said. His face and the look of fear in his eyes told a different story. Come down to the office, I said, placing an arm on his shoulder. I have a son not much younger than Pat. If my boy were away from home and in some kind of trouble, I'd expect someone to be looking out for him. I strode off to my office. Pat Duffy trailed behind me. There was reluctance in his steps. His body language spoke volumes. Even the way he sat in the seat across from me, shoulders hunched, eyes weary, suggested this was more than girlfriend trouble. I strode off to my office, Pat Duffy trailed behind me, there was reluctance in his steps, his body language spoke volumes, even the way he sat in the seat across from me, shoulders hunched, eyes weary, suggested this was more than girlfriend trouble. So what's the problem Pat? I asked. I glanced to my wristwatch. It was well past nine o'clock. He didn't answer. I repeated my question but in a different form. If you don't tell me the problem, I can't help you. He took an envelope from the pocket of his jacket. I opened the envelope and read the letter inside. What I read was a mess of ill-written abuse mixed with threats. I placed the letter back inside the envelope and returned it to Pat. Best place for that is the basket, son. But he says he's going to kill me, Duffy said. I laughed out loud. A bloody nutter, I told him. I've had letters like that, especially when I was the skipper at Mulcaster. I went to the door and called for Julie. Julie, see the pad gets a cup of coffee? I winked at her, letting her know there was nothing serious. I'll give you a lift to the training ground, I said. Young Duffy had not yet learned to drive a car. As he went out, head hanging low as if he'd just missed an important penalty kick, he fished into his pocket and took out the envelope. You keep the letter, sir, he said in his soft brogue. I put the letter in my pocket and thought no more about it right then. Julie closed the door behind them. I checked the time. We were due at the training ground in about 30 minutes. That gave me time to ring my agent in London. My agent works hard on my behalf, considering... The amount of money he creams off the top of everything I earn he Dan will ought to work hard. He's a good guy and we have a close relationship based on mutual trust. The call over I changed into my tracksuit. Exercise would take Duffy's mind off the foolish letter. For some reason I did not throw the letter in the waste bin where it belonged but kept it in the pocket of my suit. I attached no importance to the letter. Like I said it was from a nutter, some sick loner with nothing better to do than make idle threats. Exercise would take Duffy's mind off the foolish letter. For some reason I did not throw the letter in the waste bin where it belonged but kept it in the pocket of my suit. I attached no importance to the letter, like I said it was from a nutter, some sick loner with nothing better to do than make idle threats. The training ground is 5 miles from the ground. We could travel there in a group, in the bus but we always go by car. That allows some of the players an extra hour or so in bed. Young men like to sleep on, especially if them club in clubbing the previous night. Has Pat Duffy gone out? I asked the girl on reception. She didn't know. I expected him to be standing next to my car. He wasn't there. I waited, growing impatient. When Duffy did not come after 10 minutes, I was getting angry. Young man or not, potential star or not, he would have to learn who was the boss don't keep the boss waiting. I checked the reception area. I checked the toilets. Finally I went down to the locker room. The sight that confronted me as I entered was something for which I was totally unprepared. Young Pat Duffy, air striker, was stretched out on the floor in a pool of blood. An involuntary gasp issued from my lips. It was foolish. I went over and pulled the knife from his back. Someone had taken him unawares. That's how it was when Carberry came in. Bright red blood on the knife blade, the knife in my hand, Duffy's dead body stretched out on the locker room floor. I didn't do it, I said weakly. And England didn't win the World Cup in 66, he sneered. I put the knife down. Even then, it occurred to me that my prints were on the handle. It was half past nine in the morning. What started as just another Monday morning had suddenly turned pear-shaped. Eddie hitched his backpack onto his right shoulder. I'll give the police a bell, Carberry said. Chapter two. Craig, you were only at chapter two. All hell seemed to break loose. One minute I'm in the locker room with the dead boy and Carberry sneering, and the next thing I'm in my office, not at my desk but the set E, dazed. Outside the door there was the hubbub of voices. By this time everybody must have known and no doubt the rumour mill was active. Julie was sitting next to me, holding out a glass of water. Drink this, she said. You look like a ghost. I drank deeply. Thanks Julie, I needed that. Right then Carberry entered. He didn't knock. I phoned the fuzz he said. Well, it wouldn't be long before the police arrived, that's for sure. Murder's a grave crime. There was also the added frisson of it happening down at the local stadium. Hey, how about that? I used the word frisson. And it wouldn't be long before we had the media calling. Those guys, they missed nothing. In any case, there would be someone at the police only too willing to give a tip off to the press, the radio, the local TV, probably Jim White. Would you like coffee? Julie asked. She ought to know that I rarely take coffee, but this was an exceptional situation and she was thinking of what was best for me. My pulse was racing, my mind was in a daze and the last thing I needed was coffee to raise my blood pressure. I have some chamomile tea, Julie said. What the hell do I need herbal tea for? I asked. It calms you down, Julie replied. Do you drink the stuff? I asked. All the time, Julie smiled. Working with you, I need all the help I can get. I'll try it, I told her. Julie went out to make tea. It was then that I noticed Eddie Carberry was sitting in my chair behind the desk. He was rubbing his head with his fingers and the palm of his right hand as men who are bowling and conscious of it often do. It's a problem that I don't yet have. What's this all about, Eddie? I asked. Will you tell me, Steve? He said. You're the man in charge. Julie went out to make tea. It was then that I noticed Eddie Carberry was sitting in my chair behind the desk. What's this all about, Eddie? I asked. Will you tell me, Steve? He said. You're the man in charge. Let me tell you about Eddie Carberry. Some of you will remember he used to play for Bridesford. Bridesford? Is that even... A, oh, I don't know and several other lesser clubs. He was a midfield player, he was never going to be a world beater, was never going to win a national cap. Not that there's anything wrong in that, many play football for a living, but few can expect to be chosen for the national side. He spent three years in the army, not a fashionable regiment by all accounts, but he was chosen nevertheless to represent the army at soccer. He also spent time on duties in Northern Ireland, and that was no easy posting when the troubles were at their height. I remember seeing Eddie described as a good club man. That's meant to indicate solid worth rather than flash and talent. For every artist in soccer, I've used the word soccer again, it's football, there are a dozen or so artisans for every artist. I count myself as an artisan. As a defender, my job was always to stop the other guys from scoring goals, to stop an attack and then turn defence to attack. Many goals are scored when a team counterattacks straight from defence. Eddie Carberry played for 12 teams before he finally moved into coaching in his late 30s. Some players stick with one club all their lives. Tom Finney of Preston North End and Nat Lofthouse of Borden Wanderers come to mind. Hey, su- suddenly I'm using real players and real teams. What's going on there? Those players are few. Even the great Stanley Matthews. Oh there's another one. Played for both Blackpool and Stoke. The usual pattern for those in the highest divisions is to drop down a notch or two as the advancing years take their toll of muscles and wind. I've played for six clubs, though at the last two, Threshfield and Ledesford, it has been as player-manager. It was earlier this year, in September, that I finally and reluctantly hung up my boots. It wasn't easy, but was necessary. I understand how Eddie must have felt, there's a a thrill of buzzing, turning out every week and putting into practice the routines learned and repeated on the training ground. I understand how Eddie must have felt, there's a a thrill of buzzing, turning out every week and putting into practice the routines learned and repeated on the training ground. Eddie was a bit of a nomad, even as coach. He started out with Carlwell in the third division moved back to Bridesford where he had connections, to a spell with Donningford, again in the lowest division and then moved to Leddesford. not heard of any of those. When he joined two years ago the team was languishing near the bottom of the first, they were going nowhere except perhaps into the second division. I was brought in a couple of months ago to stop the rot, for me that meant a whole new coaching staff, I was determined to employ my own people. There was no place in my scheme for a man like Eddie Carberry, whose ideas of training meant two circuits of the cinder tracker, a bit of wall passing, a lot of shouting and then everyone down to the pub for a liquid lunch. That isn't what the modern game is all about. I gave the guy his chance, I talked to him both formally and informally and it soon became clear that he was not the clued up man I was looking for as my first assistant. Julie brought in my tea and a plate of sweet biscuits. The pack is outside, she said. She meant the press. Being like hounds, I asked, raising the ghost of a smile. Ready to bite, she said. Tell them I'll talk later. What about Harry? Harry Pickles works for the Lettersford Inquirer, the local paper. A man who's done me lots of favours since I arrived. Always writes a positive report found space to praise my efforts with the team. Take him on one side. Tell him that I'll speak to him first. Harry Pickles is a greaser, Eddie Carberry said. Harry Pickles is essential to our local support, I replied. He's not only loyal to the club, he's been loyal this part of twenty years. He's a true supporter. Would be even if he weren't writing for the local newspaper. He's never had a good word for me. Carberry grumbled. There are some things you do not answer, so I said nothing. Of course I wasn't a glamour boy with Mulcaster a was I? I looked up at Eddie's face, twisted with envy. Lack of information feeds rumour. I had no doubt that the story had been embellished a hundred times already. Some member of the ancillary staff was probably swearing on oath that he'd not only seen me with the knife in my hand, but... Had actually seen me deliver the fatal blow, and phoning the guys on the national newspapers, or even local TV, or sending Jim White into a frenzy, saying, "Twitch has gone into an absolute meltdown here, Natalie." I walked round the desk. Do you mind, Eddie? He pretended not to understand. What was that, Steve? I'd like to sit in my chair. Oh yes, of course. He stood up. Your chair. I believe I'm paid to be coach of the first team, Eddie. The last thing I wanted was an argument. I had enough to concern me without seeking further trouble. How long can it last, though? I beg your pardon, I said. With all this, he said, I'm sure it'll be sorted out, Eddie. I sighed. The guy was working on my nerves, and at the very time I needed to be calm. After all, law would be arriving soon and they would have a battery of questions. Sorted out? Eddie sounded incredulous. You say that when you were caught with a murder weapon in your hands. What the hell are you saying Eddie? Now it was my turn to be surprised. I'll have to tell the truth Steve, to the police. What is the truth Eddie? I asked and I admit that now it was my turn to sneer. What is the truth? There was a knock on the door. I turned expecting to see Julie ushering in Harry Pickles, in fact she showed in two guys although they were in plain clothes it was clear that they were police officers. The first one flashed a warrant card. Detective Chief Inspector Shannon, he said. He closed the warrant card without giving me a chance to examine it. Please sit down gentlemen. Julie offered to take their coats but they declined. Anything to drink? I asked. Both said they'd take coffee. Two coffees, Julie, I said, and more chamomile tea. I heard Eddie Carbury snort involuntarily. I hadn't asked him what he would take to drink. The seat in front of my desk is a long, low settee. Modern in design, but very comfortable. It's long enough to take four or five people comfortably. The two detectives sat down. Eddie did the same. Perhaps you'd better wait outside, I suggested, in a low voice. This was not the place for confrontation. Eddie Carberry, the second officer said. Eddie nodded. Detective Sergeant Whitteson. The two men shook hands. Carberry sat back, arms folded, a self-satisfied smirk on his lips. I sat down feeling deflated. I was no longer master in my own office. The senior officer spoke. I think maybe Steve's right, he said. I'm accustomed to complete strangers, referring to me by my first name. It's the price we sports people pay for a certain amount of fame. It doesn't last long, fame, that is, except for the very few. Right? Carberry asked. That you should wait outside, Shannon replied. But I was there, Eddie Carberry said. There? When the murder happened. Was it murder, sir? Shannon asked in a low probing voice, Duffy had a knife in his back, you don't stab yourself in the back do you? I almost smiled, Eddie knew all about stabbing others in the back, at least with his words. Do you know the difference between murder and manslaughter? Shannon asked. Well, murder is when… Eddie stopped to think, it was clear from the look on his face that he did not know the difference didn't know the difference between butter and margarine either. Please wait outside Mr Carbury. I saw him, Eddie Carbury spluttered. He stood up and started to wave his arms about. Saw him, Sergeant Widdowson said. Now it was his turn to probe. Bending over poor young Duffy, Eddie said, and the murder weapon in his hand. That's very important, Widdowson said gravely. Eddie Carberry smirked again. You're clearly an important witness, Widdowson continued. So be sure not to leave the premises, Chief Inspector Shannon warned him, as he too stood up and led Carberry by the arm to the door. Julie came in with two coffees, my cup of tea, don't forget I like chamomile now, it's beautiful, and more biscuits. Right, I said. Where shall we begin? Well, the beginning's usually the best place, Shannon replied. He didn't look at me directly, he examined a biscuit as if for incriminating evidence before finally deciding to bite off a small piece. I found him in the locker room, I said. With a knife in his back? Just as Eddie told you. Did you place the knife in his back? Shannon asked. Be serious, I said, and I smiled broadly, though it was a smile born of embarrassment rather than of having said something comical. I am being very serious Steve, Shannon said. Murder is a very serious matter. I nodded. I too was coming to understand the seriousness of my position. Who was the murdered boy? Was it Pat Duffy, your new centre forward? Yes it was, I said. Let me take you to the locker room. Not yet, Shannon said. We don't want people going in there and messing with the evidence, I said. We've sealed off the area, Sergeant Whitteson told me. Have you seen the body? I asked. Yes, we have, Shannon replied. And what was your conclusion? I asked. That the young man was certainly dead. The pathologist will be able to tell us the time of death, Sergeant Whitteson said. I can tell you when Pat Duffy died, I said loudly, to within ten minutes at least. I think I should warn you, Chief Inspector Shannon said gravely, that you are not obliged to see anything. And we're not charging you with anything either, Shannon added. He coughed. Hopefully that wasn't COVID-19. Sergeant Widdeson took out a notebook and a tape recorder. Tell us everything from the time you arrived here this morning, Shannon said, to when you found, as you say, the body of Patrick Duffy. Hang on, wasn't he in Dallas? keep to the facts, take your time. You suspect me of killing young Duffy don't you?" I said. Just the facts, keep to the facts Woodison said. Why the hell should I want to kill Duffy? I asked angrily. Why should anyone want to kill him? That is something we have to establish Mr Barnes, Shannon said. His words sent a shiver down my spine. It was the formality of my surname now. I exhaled breath. Well, you have to, don't you? Suddenly, breathing did not come easily. OK, the beginning. I arrived at the stadium early this morning, I always do. I plan to get some office work done before going to the training ground with the squad. Was Duffy a member of this squad? Shannon asked. Very important, I said, especially today. We were going to work on strategies to get the ball swiftly out of defence up to the front runners. Duffy is a striker, a a front runner. Carry on please, Shannon said politely. I didn't have time to continue. At that very moment the door burst open, no knocking, no introductions. The intruder was very angry. What the hell is going on here, he shouted. What's happening Steve? Has everyone gone stark staring mad? I stood up, Shannon and Widdowson did the same, that's the way people behave when confronted by an angry man, especially when the angry man is the chairman of the club and when he's worth more millions than you and I have had good dinners, or even hot dinners, but for some reason I've written good dinners here. I want explanations, Sir Lawrence said to the two detectives, and I want them pretty damn quick. We're just about to leave, Eddie Carberry said. Good, come straight back to the stadium, I commanded, and look bloody sharpish. I slammed the telephone down into his cradle that was a mistake. In my words and my actions in the last five minutes I would proved to Shannon and Widdowson that I was capable of bad temper. That both had noticed this I did not doubt. The chairman wants to speak to you Steve. Again? Alone, he's been fuming all morning. I could well understand why Chief Inspector Shannon had been a bit short with Sir Lawrence earlier. He'd come close to telling the chairman to go away and wait his turn for an interview. Sir Lawrence does not take kindly to such behaviour, no matter how politely it's presented. Tell him to give me fifteen minutes, I said. Julie pulled a face. He's been very patient, Steve. Yes, and so have Harry Pickles and the boys and girls from the fourth estate. The fourth what? The press, I smiled. That was something I learned at school. Which school did you attend? Shannon asked, ever inquisitive. A comprehensive in Newcastle, I told him. Do you want to know my final results? He shook his head and almost smiled. I was pleased he didn't take me up on the matter of GCSE's past. My results were not the best in the school. Mind you, there must be many of my schoolmates who wish they'd made it in senior soccer. I spoke first to Harry Pickles. He was full of good sense and sympathy. I told him what had happened. Again I told it exactly like it was. No embellishments, no spinning or twisting. I had done nothing to be ashamed of. Certainly I had not put a knife in young Pat Duffy's back. I'll make it look as good as I can Steve, Harry said. Thanks Harry, I shan't forget. Who do you think did it? Eddie? I shook my head. Off the record Harry, sure, he replied. Eddie's a jealous man. When I came here he saw himself being made redundant again. At his age that's a hard pill to swallow. But murder Harry? I shook my head once more. Eddie? I can't believe it. Then who was the murderer? Harry asked. Duffy didn't commit Harry Kirry. That's for sure I said. I say that quite a lot don't I? Where is he now? Harry asked. Driving back from the training ground, I said. I spoke to him five minutes ago, on the phone. No, not Eddie Carberry, Harry explained. I mean, where's Pat Duffy? I shook my head in disbelief. For several hours, while being questioned, I had hardly thought of Pat Duffy. I assumed his body was still on the floor of the locker room. I suppose the police are with his body, I said. There'll be a scene of crime officer. They'll be taking dabs, Harry said. Mean fingerprints. And DNA, I shouldn't wonder, I said. That should lead straight to the killer. It will eliminate you, Steve, Harry said seriously, but it might not flush out the murderer. Why not? I asked. Because the murderer might not be part of the letters fit setup. He could be someone from outside. Well, if so, how did they get in? I asked. There's a strong lock on reception. Don't I know it? Harry said ruefully. Well, Harry, I said with determination. There's one thing I know for sure. I didn't do it. I checked my wristwatch. Look, Harry, I have to talk to Sir Lawrence. You understand, don't you? Harry stood up. He nodded his understanding. Thanks for the exclusive, Steve. At that very moment, Sir Lawrence Brooke entered my office. My patience is not inexhaustible, Steve, he said. Like I told you, the chairman's an educated guy who knows how to use words. Harry's just leaving, I replied. The chairman was not shouting as he had been earlier in the morning, yet I could tell from his face and his voice that he was still a very angry man. He was angry at the whole turn of events no doubt, and someone needed to do a lot of explaining. That someone was me. In my words and my actions in the last five minutes, I would proved to Shannon and Wooderson that I was capable of bad temper. That both had noticed this, I did not doubt. The Chairman wants to speak to you Steve. Again? Alone, he's been fuming all morning. I could well understand why Chief Inspector Shannon had been a bit short with Sir Lawrence earlier. He'd come close to telling the Chairman to go away and wait his turn for an interview. Sir Lawrence does not take kindly to such behaviour, no matter how politely it's presented. Tell him to give me fifteen minutes," I said. Julie pulled her face. He's been very patient, Steve. Yes, and so have Harry Pickles and the boys and girls from the fourth estate. The fourth what? The press, I smiled. That was something I learned at school. Which school did you attend? Shannon asked, ever inquisitive. A comprehensive in Newcastle, I told him. Do you want to know my final results? He shook his head and almost smiled. I was pleased he didn't take me up on the matter of GCSE's past. My results were not the best in the school. Mind you, there must be many of my schoolmates who wish they'd made it in senior soccer. I spoke first to Harry Pickles. He was full of good sense and sympathy. I told him what had happened. Again, I told it exactly like it was. No embellishments, no spinning or no twisting. I had done nothing to be ashamed of. Certainly I had not put a knife in young Pat Duffy's back. I'll make it look as good as I can, Steve, Harry said. Thanks Harry, I shan't forget. Who do you think did it? Eddie? I shook my head. Off the record, Harry. Sure, he replied. Eddie's a jealous man. When I came here he saw himself being made redundant, again. At his age that's a hard pill to swallow, but murder, Harry? I shook my head once more, Eddie? I can't believe it. Then who was the murderer? Harry asked. Duffy didn't commit Harry Kirry. That's for sure, I said. I say that quite a lot, don't I? Where is he now? Harry asked. Driving back from the training ground, I said. I spoke to him five minutes ago, on the phone. No not Eddie Carberry, Harry explained. I mean, where's Pat Duffy? I shook my head in disbelief. For several hours while being questioned, I had hardly thought of Pat Duffy. I assumed his body was still on the floor of the locker room. I suppose the police are with his body, I said. There'll be a scene of crime officer. They'll be taking dabs, Harry said, meaning fingerprints, and DNA, I shouldn't wonder, I said. That should lead straight to the killer. It will eliminate you, Steve, Harry said seriously, but it might not flush out the murderer. Why not? I asked. Because the murderer might not be part of the letters for setter it could be someone from outside. Well if so, how did they get in? I asked. There's a strong lock on reception. Don't I know it? Harry said ruefully. Well Harry, I said with determination, there's one thing I know for sure, I didn't do it. I checked my wristwatch. Look Harry, I have to talk to Sir Lawrence, you understand don't you? Harry stood up. He nodded his understanding. Thanks for the exclusive, Steve. At that very moment, Sir Lawrence Brooke entered my office. My patience is not inexhaustible, Steve, he said. Like I told you, the Chairman's an educated guy who knows how to use words. Harry's just leaving, I replied. The Chairman was not shouting as he had been earlier in the morning, yet I could tell from his face and his voice that he was still A very angry man he was angry at the whole turn of events no doubt and someone needed to do a lot of explaining that someone was me chapter four no day has ever gone faster time is a strange thing you sit through an exciting film or play a good game and 90 minutes passes if there were five on other occasions you think you've been bored out of your mind for an hour and when you check the time only five minutes have elapsed (laughs) Birmingham fans will certainly empathise with that. That day, looking back on it, seems a confused jumble. My abiding memories of crowds, questions, confusion. Nothing achieved. I was with the chairman when the first editions of the Lettersford Inquirer were brought in. We were front page news. True to his word, Harry Pickles did his very best to make me and the club appear in a good light. He stressed that while there were police inquiries going on, No accusations were being made, there were no arrests, nor even the suggestion of imminent arrests. We'll be all over the television screens this evening, Sir Lawrence said, and in the national newspapers tomorrow, on the front pages too, the very worst kind of publicity we could possibly have had. I sighed, I shrugged my shoulders. Some things happen and we have no control over them. Whoever had wanted to harm Pat Duffy enough to kill him was also doing serious damage to the club. This kind of thing, Sir Lawrence continued, is going to take years to repair. We've nothing to feel guilty about, I said. What happens if the murderer, I assume it was murder, what happens if he's an employee of the club? Well it certainly looks that way, I told him. Our security is tight. And so it should be, Sir Lawrence said, we pay enough for it. Ever mindful of money, my chairman and so he should be. Any business is about making profit. The business person who forgets that essential point is in commercial trouble. Profits don't come by chance, they accrue from careful planning. I was fully aware that my buying and transfer policies were a critical part of the business that was Lettersford Town Football Club. Sir Lawrence went to his drinks cabinet. He has a very well appointed office, luxurious in the modern style I would say. He poured himself brandy and ginger ale. He knows my taste in drinks and poured a full glass of mineral water. I take it you are still teetotal, Steve, he said with amusement in his eyes, even after the travails of the day. Hey, if this continues, I shall be drinking heavily and smoking sixty a day, I replied. Right, he said, as he sat down again with the brandy glass cradled in the palm of his right hand. There has to be a concerted effort of damage limitation. At that moment, the telephone on the mahogany table rang. Sir Lawrence was slightly agitated, he'd asked his secretary to withhold all except urgent calls. Yes, he barked, he's an urbane guy, smooth, polished, but he can show anger. Oh yes, ask him to come in, he said, more sweetly now. It was Bill Brown, my agent he'd driven up from London as soon as the news reached him. We all shook hands and Bill looking somewhat dishevelled with no tie and his straggly hair all over the place sat down next to me. It's no secret that in many quarters within the football business there are people who detest agents. People in positions of power too. Sir Lawrence has never made any secret of his views in this direction. For him agents are something the game could well do without. They inflate fees and raise the players higher than they ought to be. No doubt there is some truth in such views. For a player, however, or a manager, an agent has a more than useful function. For managers especially, a good agent is vital. Management is a stressful occupation and often short-lived. In the modern game there is little if any tolerance of failure. Sure, there are exceptions to the rule. When Sunderland went down from the Premier Division, the club stuck with Peter Reid and. Reed he triumphantly delivered the goods within a year. Chardon Athletic, relegated last season, have likewise stuck with Alan Kirbishley. For the rest however, the ground is littered with heads which have rolled. Many managers, or coaches as we now say, know more about a P45 than they do any other piece of paper. In such a situation where a vote of confidence in the morning can lead to being fired in the afternoon it's necessary to have somebody batting for you. Bill Brown bats on my side. He knows the ins and outs of a contract. He represents many players and managers. There isn't a soccer situation he has not encountered and dealt with so far successfully. Murder is a situation he's not encountered so far in his career. I've been talking on the way up Bill said, patting his mobile phone. People like Bill Maybe on the motorway three hours, but they're still doing the business. He'd been busy briefing journalists. He'd talked to a firm of solicitors, big hitters in London. His contacts within radio and television had been informed. In all these contacts, Bill had been stressing that I was completely innocent, that I was caught up in a situation not of my own making, and that it was business as usual in terms of planning for good results. In all these contacts, Bill had been stressing that I was completely innocent, that I was caught up in a situation not of my own making, and that business as usual in terms of planning for good results, not least the weekend game against Fulton was the order of the day at the town ground. All this was explained in detail to Sir Lawrence. The chairman nodded his satisfaction. I've asked a member of the agency to prepare a statement for Steve, Bill said to Sir Lawrence. It should have been faxed through by now. He can read it to the press and the TV and radio people. Should I take questions afterwards? I asked. I think you ought to, Sir Lawrence said. It always looks bad, especially on television, if a statement is followed by an abrupt dismissal. It always appears as if there's something to hide. I agree, Bill said. That must have been a football in first, an agent and a chairman in complete harmony. I shall accompany you, but I shall say nothing, Sir Lawrence said, except to state my complete support for you and all members of the club in this unfortunate matter. Bill Brown nodded sagely. He took a comb from his breast pocket and tried to bring some semblance of order to his unruly hair. Sounds like that idiot danter. The facts had arrived. Julie brought it in. I had time to read it and digest it. Are we ready then? Sir Lawrence asked. I'd like to talk to Susan again, I said. I'd spoken to my wife earlier. Now it was a matter of bringing her up to date. I assured her that all was well and there was nothing to worry about. She suggested getting in the car and coming over but I persuaded her that the best place for her at this time was at home, giving explanations and support to the children. I suggested that she should keep them out of school for the remainder of the week. I didn't want them to come under the spotlight in any way. I rang off and said that I was now ready to meet the throng. We went to one of the upstairs function rooms. On our arrival there, we were met with a battery of flashbulbs such as I have never witnessed before, not even when I lifted the FA Cup and the European Cup as captain of Mulcaster United. All those flashbulbs, all those reporters, TV cameras, microphones in such a restricted place made me realise how intense public scrutiny really can be. I sat down at the prepared table with Sir Lawrence. Bill chose to sit to one side away from the angle of cameras. He's my agent. He has no wish to share the limelight in any way. That's unusual. Sir Lawrence stood up. He's very assured when it comes to public speaking. It's an assurance I cannot match. Sure, I'm accustomed to interviews, but I never feel completely at ease. The commonly asked questions I can deal with, yet always in my mind there's fear of the one that I cannot properly cope with, the one that would trip me up make me express something indiscreet and you can be sure that this will be the very remark that follows me like a zany for the rest of my career. Take a different and yet similar example from television many people have forgotten the triumphs of Brian Clough with Derby County and with Nottingham Forest. Hey I wrote it properly that time I didn't put knots well there you go. And more still cannot remember him as a player but most people have a memory from TV of Brian Hidden out at spectators who invaded the pitch. Some images seem indelible, they cannot be erased from the public's consciousness. The introduction was brief. He expressed total confidence in the first team coach, then it was my turn to address the journalists. Like Sir Lawrence and everyone at the club I regretted what had happened to Pat Duffy. We sent deepest condolences to his family and we would help them in whatever ways were possible in their hour of grief. We would assist the police to find the killer of Pat Duffy in every way we could. Whether the killer was connected to the club or an outsider, no efforts would be spared to unmask him, Almost like Scooby-Doo. The murder, if it was murder, is a matter for the police. Where are the police? A woman screamed her question, as if their absence from this briefing were in some way reprehensible. The police are investigating, I said. I'm sure they'll make a statement when they're ready. The club and all members and employees will cooperate fully with the police in their inquiries. Everyone wants to find out who committed this terrible, this terrible deed. I stood up. Tears were stinging my eyes. I'd had as much as I could take for one day. The memory of Pat Duffy, dead in the locker room, was too much. I may be in a position to make a statement later on. I said. The reporters crowded in on me. I'm a big man and I could have carved out a passage for myself through the rock. However, I was on TV and the slightest suggestion of roughness on my part would be noted. For my sake, for the sake of the club, it was essential that I remain gentlemanly and dignified. I parried a battery of questions with as much politeness as I could muster until I was able to reach my own office and closed the door behind me. That was well handled Steve, Sir Lawrence said. I thanked him. We have to carry on as normally as possible, he continued, but I do not like the idea of a press gang besieging you at the training ground for the rest of the week. I need to be occupied, I said. Physical activity is essential at a time like this. You could slip away for a few days holiday, Bill suggested. That might seem heartless, young Duffy being dead. That decision I shall leave to you, Sir Lawrence said quietly in his usual well-modulated voice. I have every confidence in you, Steve. He paused. I shall be in my office. I suspect that this is going to be a very long week, a very long week indeed, until the murderer is found, I said. Sir Lawrence nodded politely to Bill and left the office. I called Julian. Is someone getting shot at the press? I asked her. The security people are getting them outside right now, she said. Is there anything you need? Two cups of chamomile tea, I said, raising a ghost of a smile for the first time since finding Pat Duffy's body. I'd have thought two large cans would be more in order, Bill said, but he did not question my choice any further. The two of us sat together, drinking our tea no milk, no sugar, and chewing the fat. I threw a lot of questions at Bill and he always came up with sensible answers. I felt as if I were talking to a good friend, someone prepared to listen and answer sympathetically and not merely someone who looked on me as a business proposition, a big earner to be robbed of a percentage of all his earnings. Some agents may be crooks, others may be sharper than is good for them, but with Bill Brown I had no complaints. Still less at the close of what had been a hectic Monday. One thing's for sure, Bill, I said. What's that, mate? Whatever happens to the rest of the week, it can't get worse than this, the first day. Are you right there, Steve? Bill replied. You are absolutely right there, my friend. In fact, I was completely wrong, and so was Bill. The week could get worse, and it became worse faster than either of us anticipated. Earlier, I'd asked Julie not to allow anyone into the office, except of course, the chairman, and she could not in any way have kept him out. My mobile phone was on, but in answer phone mode. It rang regularly. I'd have switched it off completely to gain a bit of privacy, but I didn't want to exclude Susan or either of the kids if they were to call. Therefore I was surprised when Julie opened the door. I'm sorry, she said, but they insisted. They, in this case, were the two detectives, Chief Inspector Dave Shannon and Detective Sergeant Wilson, I don't know his first name. Sit down, I said, affably. Any new developments? Shannon looked at Bill. Oh, this is Bill Brown, my agent, I said. Anything you have to say can be said in front of Bill. I noticed that neither detective made any effort to sit down. This meant that they didn't intend to stay long. Shannon cleared his throat. My heart sank. It suddenly occurred to me that the reason they would declined my offer to be comfortable was because they had something formal to say. You are Mr Stephen Barnes? Shannon asked. You know very well I am, I said. What the hell's going on? Bill asked, his voice betraying his alarm. Your address is, he recited the whole of my home address even stating in the county of Cheshire at the end. I nodded my agreement, in my brain there was a terrible feeling of foreboding. Stephen Barnes, by the authority vested in me I am placing you under arrest. Arrest? What the hell for? I shouted angrily. My interruption meant that I missed the whole of his warning but I took on board the fact that I was not obliged to say anything but he had the right to take down what I said and if I chose not to speak that would also be noted. People no longer have the absolute right to silence which we once enjoyed in this country. Suddenly for all my physical fitness I felt weak. There was a large hole where my stomach should have been. I sat down before I fell down. I didn't do it, I said. He was dead when I found him. I just could not believe the words which I had just heard. Please come with us. Widdison said, putting a hand on my arm. I tried to shake him off. "'Don't make me use the cuffs, Steve,' he said. "'Once we reach HQ,' Shannon said, you will have the right to contact your lawyer.' "'I'll do that right now,' Bill said angrily. "'And let Susan and the kids know,' I asked him. "'No problem, mate,' Bill said. "'Leave it to me.' He turned to Chief Inspector Shannon. "'You're making a big mistake, Shannon.' A very, very big mistake. You understand? A bloody great mistake. We're talking career options here. I wondered from which movie Bill had just plundered that last remark. Suddenly what Bill had said struck me as funny. I started to laugh. It must have been the tension for, in truth, the situation was not funny. Not funny at all. Chapter 5 It took me 24 hours to get out of custody. 24 hours wasted, and I was only out on bail, I had to appear before a magistrate. The magistrate made it very clear that bail in a murder inquiry was most unusual but as I had made certain sureties, paid an immense amount in bail, surrendered my passport, made promises to be of good behaviour etc, he was going to set me free. My solicitor, who had flown up from London to Leeds Bradford Airport, spoke on my behalf. All I had to do was be polite and look honest, that's no problem. I had nothing whatsoever to hide. There were lots of things I could have said, in particular I believe that Chief Inspector Shannon had been hasty in making an arrest. Once this was all over and I was confident it would soon be over and done with and my name cleared I might consider taking out a case against the police. We left the court in a taxi, we could have used Bill's motor but we didn't want the crowd of reporters, yes they were outside the court like a flock of vultures, to get his number plate and be able to harass him. It was now late in the afternoon of Tuesday, two days away from the squad, I dared not think what Eddie Carberry was doing with them. The game against Fulton was crucial. We were lined third in the table, Fulton were level pegging but had a poorer goal difference. The game on the Friday was going to be a six pointer. Back at the club, I found everyone listless. The whole business had upset many people. Not least those like Julie, with whom I worked most closely. I was still worried about Susan and the children. There was no way the kids could be protected completely. They see the newspapers, listen to radio and watch TV. Even if it were possible to insulate them from all that, the other children at school would be only too pleased to tell them that their dad was in deep trouble. Yep, that was the long and the short of it, I was in deep trouble. My future as a manager, my place within the game, even my credibility within society was at stake. Football has been very good to me and I am grateful, but I am also sensible enough to understand that if I went down for murder, all my sources of income, the sponsorships, the media jobs and my house would be worth nothing. Most of all though, I feared what this was doing to my family. At times like this the ancient loyalties and responsibilities loomed large and nothing carried a bigger emotional impact than a man's loyalty to his family. I asked for time to be alone with Bill Brown but first I needed to speak to Julie. She assured me that flowers had been sent to Pat Duffy's parents in Ireland. The grieving couple had been told of my own grief, and they had accepted condolences. Sir Lawrence was playing golf wasn't sure where and I wasn't sure where members of the playing staff were I had no wish to meet Eddie Carbury, so Bill and I went to the office we needed to rest but we also had to discuss how best to get through the week you're innocent Bill said do you doubt it? I asked sharply easy Steve sorry, this thing's getting to me I apologised you're going to be found not guilty no way will you go down tell that to Shannon, my fingerprints were on the knife. DNA was sorted, Bill said. If there's anything they can use for analysis. I didn't exactly draw saliva over Pat's body and my blood wasn't mixed with his. Exactly, it'll fail for lack of credible evidence. So I'm found to be innocent, I said, but this will follow me all my life. That's something we're going to have to live with Steve. I like the way he said we this was one guy who wasn't about to abandon me. You'll always be known as the manager who beat the rap. I want to be known as the guy who led Mulcaster to their first championship in 27 years. I want to be remembered as the man who lifted Ledesford from nowhere and took them into the Premier League. Sure, all that too, Bill said. Your shoulders are broad, Steve. You need all your strength. Remember, everyone's rooting for you. Pressure can Build up inside you, I was like a furnace, under great pressure of heat, ready to explode. I closed my eyes, I sighed, my brain was active, all kinds of thoughts crowded in. What I needed was time to sleep. What are your plans Bill? I'm your agent, my job is to represent you, right now you need someone at your shoulder. So you're not planning to return to London tonight? Hell no, Bill said, but what about the baby? Bill and his wife have recently had their first son. She'll understand, Bill smiled. And as for my son, he said that with pride. Well, he's still too young to notice. Then you'll stay the night, I said. I'll let Susan know. Troubled though I was, I couldn't resist teasing him. You set off now, Bill. I'll do some work for an hour, and then I'll be waiting to open the gate for you. Bill rose to the bait. You think I can't beat you? In your car? I asked, compared with my Jag. It isn't the motor Steve, it's the quality of the driver, he said and he added, see you at your place. We shook hands and Bill left. I turned to the correspondence on my desk. I sighed again. There was no way I could concentrate on paperwork, in fact there was difficulty concentrating on anything at all. My mind was active but it kept flipping from one thing to another. The only constant image was the sight of Pat Duffy, dead, knifed. It was at that moment, I think, that I first realised I'd have to sort this thing out myself. I needed to make inquiries. God knows I'm no detective. Yet, while I had a lawyer working for me and my agent on my side and the love of my family, I had this deep inner conviction that I was the one who had to find the person or persons who had murdered Pat Duffy. The swine who turned my whole world, my hopes, my ambitions upside down. There's a saying in Ledesford and other parts of the north, God helps them who help themselves. For me, I was now convinced this was such a time. The problem was, where to begin? Did I take Eddie Carberry on one side and threaten him with a beating unless he confessed? Well that was utter nonsense. In a decent society people can't behave like that. In any case, I was not convinced, did not even consider it a possibility that Eddie was the killer. It didn't seem to be his style. Yet he had the motive, which was to get me sacked, accused, convicted and he, on the back of a run of results, moving into my managerial chair, which he certainly coveted. There was also the added motive that he knew for sure he would soon lose his position as my assistant. I had made no secret of the team I wanted round me. colleagues with the same modern views as me about coaching tactics and strategy. I took a shower, the business and worry of the day had made me feel dirty. By now the admin block was almost deserted, the only person I saw was a security guard I nodded and he returned my greeting with a brief salute. I went out to the pitch, that was where I'd always been happiest, on the park. As skipper of Mulcaster all those years I learned responsibilities. I learned how to motivate players. You have to earn their respect. You have to be in possession of skills beyond mere soccer skills. Playing soccer, especially when you're the skipper, makes a man of you. If you don't mature, you don't stay the course. In my playing years, I've been observing too. I only served under two managers, but one of them was a giant who will always be remembered whenever people talk and play football. But I'm not going to mention him. Because it's too obvious, right? That he chose me as his captain and set me on the road to success beyond my wildest dreams will be, for me, always a matter of deep gratitude. That doesn't mean I've modelled my managerial style on him any more than I would on Clough or Venables or Redknapp. So I'm happy to mention them. You learn something from everybody you meet. I stared intensely at this pitch, this field of dreams. You can see why this goes for a thousand quid on Amazon, can't you? Lettersford has a state-of-the-art stadium. As well as soccer, it caters for the local rugby team and is a venue for pop concerts. Probably rock concerts as well. It's a central part of the life of Lettersford. For many a mile, you can see the trusses rise from the high-tech stadium like cross bananas. Cross bananas? Soon, I was lost in thought thinking of all the stadia in Europe in which I've played. A sound behind me made me turn. For a moment there was a twinge of fear. Was someone about to stick a knife blade in my back? Oh sorry Gaffer. I turned relieved to see Martin Thornton, the side skipper, and Jimmy Lawson, one of the strikers. Hello lads, I said quietly. We just want to say Gaffer, well we're sorry about Martin was lost for words. He had no practice in this kind of thing. How do you tell the manager you're sorry he's been accused of murder? We're talking for all the guys, Jimmy Lawson said. Thanks, I appreciate what you're saying, I smiled. Trying to say. I noted that Martin was wearing trainers and Jimmy wore boots highly polished. wonder whether that's gonna mean something later on in the book. If there's anything we can do Martin said. He's a shy lad off the field, but a commanding presence on it. In some ways, I suspect, he's like me when I first was made skipper of Mulcaster. There were some there who were surprised I'd been chosen. Thrash Fulton on Friday, I said, that's the best way you can show your your solidarity. I'm going to get a bloody hat-trick, Lawson said, and in his voice there was more than support for me, there was a kind of triumph. If you pick, Jim, I cautioned. Oh, I'm on the sheet, Jimmy said cockily. I haven't put it up yet. Eddie has, Martin Thornton said quietly. He's picked a balanced team, Jimmy added. He stared me full in the eye. His cockiness was displayed openly as arrogance. Clearly, Jimmy Lawson had decided I was now a back number, that my managerial days were as good as over. Under Eddie Carberry he was likely to be assured of a regular place on the team sheet. I'd brought in Pat Duffy and a youngster with Pat's skills threatened someone like Jimmy Lawson who was an artisan and never an artist. Thanks for waiting lads, I told them. Thanks a lot. They turned, Martin with a worried look on his face but Jimmy with pleasure, pleasure no doubt of my discomfiture. Well he was wrong. I wasn't defeated yet, nor was I about to be. If my dad had taught me nothing else, he'd impressed on me the need to be straight at all times and never give in to pressure. I walked around the perimeter of the pitch. As I did so I telephoned my parents. Dad answered. I told him not to worry, to take care of my mother and everything would come out clean in the wash. Dad didn't say a great deal but he did say that at times like this a person learned who his true friends really were. He told me to take care and mind my back. It was only a saying, something that he'd said to me a thousand times, but suddenly, given the manner of Pat's death, the phrase was alarmingly apt. Pat Duffy had not watched his back, and he'd been stabbed to death. I'd switched off the mobile phone. Darkness was falling fast. I was deep in thought, but now I was trying as hard as I could to keep my mind focused. That was far from easy. I'd determined to be the means of my own salvation, but I was no detective. I was not Sherlock Holmes. Thinking of the great fictional detective, so well does the author do his job that many people believe Sherlock Holmes was a real person. I remembered a story we'd read at school. I've told you about my inspirational teacher of English, haven't I? In the final couple of years of the GCSE course we studied Romeo and Juliet, I found Shakespeare's use of language tough going, and William Golding's The Lord of the Flies. This is a novel about the force of evil within human nature and how we all need rules and regulations to keep us from behaving like animals. We also read a story by Arthur Conan Doyle called The Silver Blaze. Sherlock Holmes mentions a dog that did not bark in the night. He concludes that the person who had entered the house mysteriously must be someone known to the dog. That's it, I said aloud. Pat Duffy probably knew the person who had knifed him. He had trusted that person, turned his back to him or to her, trusted them not to kill him that is. There may have been an argument first but Duffy knew his killer. Unfortunately he would not lived to tell me the name of that person. I was assuming that I had been first to find the body. I strode back to the door. I could see into a number of offices for in some lights were still blazing. That was something I should mention at our next meeting. We could save on electricity if people switched lights off at the end of the day. In one room, quite alone, was Jimmy Lawson. I was amazed to see him because I had assumed he would have left the stadium by now. He had his jacket off. He was searching among drawers. This office was the one where personal files were kept. I watched in amazement. I could see in but because of the encroaching darkness Jimmy could not see outside. He has been very careless. While he didn't expect me to be staring in, I could as easily have been a security man. Jimmy tried to open a steel filing cabinet. It was locked. He tried to force the lock by shaking the cabinet. I half smiled. You don't succeed like that. Jimmy came to the same conclusion. What happened next took me completely by surprise. God knows this had been a day of surprises. He placed his left foot on a chair. He drew up the left trouser leg to reveal two things. Cowboy boots that reached well over his ankles and a scabbard or sheath for a knife. He drew out the knife. I shuddered. I could tell it was a knife with a, a sharp end. Jimmy poked about in the cabinet lock with the knife. He seemed determined to get into those files. Probably he wanted a sight of his own file. This was the mark of a man made anxious about his future. The knife was no more successful than the shaking of the cabinet had been. Jimmy Lawson again placed his left foot on the chair and carefully replaced the knife in its sheath. He looked round furtively, then he left the room, leaving the lights blazing. I did not waste a moment, my mind was whirling. Jimmy Lawson needed further investigation. Like Eddie Carberry, Jimmy had cause to dislike me and also the added incentive of fearing that Pat Duffy would replace him. His delight at being on the team sheet for the game against Fulton had been clear to see. His arrogance was obvious too. Those who are arrogant will attempt anything, shielded, as they believe, from the prospect of failure. I sprinted round to the car park. Few cars were there. I switched off my mobile phone. I didn't want it to ring and reveal my whereabouts to Jimmy Lawson he was opening the doors of his Ford saloon. I decided to follow him. My car was in the place specially reserved for me as first team coach. I drive a Jaguar XJ8 3.2 the sports version. It's a very nice motor, 3.2 litre AJV8 oil alloy engine, classic colour interior theme, fluted leather seats, contrast colour keyed fascia, figured walnut veneer. I'm as good as Clarkson me. As good a motor as you can hope to drive but not the car you'd choose when trying to follow a Ford saloon in a discreet manner. One look in his rear mirror and Jimmy would guess who was tailing him. I needed to be very careful indeed. He turned left at the stadium near to the cinema complex. A police car pulled away from the cinema and tucked in behind me. When people see a police vehicle they usually slow down and often feel guilty. We all bend the traffic laws at some time. had nothing to feel guilty about. My registration, licence and all other statutory details are fully up to date. Jimmy Lawson was my concern. I didn't want to lose him. He had to stop at the traffic lights when the side road joined the main Bridesford Road. At this time of day the Bridesford Road is busy. This made it easier for me to blend in with the traffic. I was tucked in about 6 cars behind Jimmy. The stadium isn't far from the centre of the town. It's situated in a flat river valley. Once a couple of hundred years ago it might have been a pretty wooded valley but for more than a hundred years it has had on it the blight of industry. A large chemical works and a sewage farm do not lend beauty to the place. In the last few years however there have been improvements. New shopping centres, the cinema complex and our state of the art stadium. Jimmy drove up the ring road, he made a turn to the left. He had no choice. I followed. He pulled to the right and appeared as if he were about to drive into the town centre. Instead he did a swift u-turn. He beat the traffic lights but I did not. I was able to see in the rear view mirror. The XJ's electrochromic rear view mirror and the door mirrors, electrically adjustable and heated, ensured I had clear vision. See this is top Gear. I watched and saw Jimmy turn quickly to his left. I was surprised, he had not, as far as I could tell, turned up a side street. The lights were now in my favour, I didn't follow Jimmy's route directly, instead I turned up Kirkgate and along the street where the parish church stands. I wasn't in need of spiritual support. This is a good place in the evening to park a car, it's well lit and there are always plenty of people so there's little chance of having the car vandalised by some envious person with nothing better to do than to carve his initials into my metallic paint. To tell the truth I rarely go into the centre of Leddesford. After a hard day's work I usually drive straight home to Cheshire. I do know my way around however. I lock the car with central locking. The XJ8 has a good security system with ultrasonic intrusion sensing, radio frequency remote control and engine immobiliser. All necessary. This is a desirable mortar and um, available for all good Jaguar stockists. I walked across the small park area next to the parish church. Soon, I was on the ring road. I found where Jimmy had turned. It was not a street but a yard of which there are quite a few in Lettersford and other towns and cities in this part of the country. Jimmy's car was parked there, the yard was very dark. There appeared to be light and activity in only one place. I walked over carefully and quietly. This was clearly the back door to premises. There was a young man sitting at a table near the door. He was reading a Flesh magazine, bet you've not heard it called that for a few years. His face was a mass of pimples. He didn't see me but there was no way I could enter without him noticing. It was my good luck that he decided to go into a back room to purchase a drink from a vending machine. I slipped in very quietly. I found myself in an ill-lit corridor. At the end there was a store place with lots of dead chickens hanging on hooks. In addition there were fridges and an ice making machine. Whatever this place was and whatever it did, food and drink were part of the operation. I passed the food store and went into another corridor, better lit than the other. On the wall there was a CCTV camera. The owners took security seriously. Nothing wrong with that. We have closed circuit TV at the stadium. I stopped briefly and stared at the camera. Whoever was watching would know, perhaps, who the intruder was. Then I saw this guy coming toward me. Tall, he was dressed in black. Slacks, shirt, heavy boots. His shoulders were as broad as a Sherman tank. It was obvious the guy hadn't come for a conversation. He lunged toward me. I prepared to defend myself from attack. Then I had a feeling someone was behind me. I turned, just in time to see another guy. In his right hand there was a heavy black truncheon and it was about to land full on my head. The other guy didn't want to mix it anymore. He held up his hands in a gesture of surrender but I was fired up. I hooked his legs with my left foot, he started to fall and a rapid punch helped him to go down faster. I looked up at the CCTV. Somebody come down here and clean up. I snapped. I was angry. That doesn't happen often, but when it does, I'm no pussycat, unless you want a breed of tiger or leopard. Within a minute, a young guy in a black suit – did everyone round here wear black? – appeared in the corridor. I'm so sorry, the young man gushed. You the manager? I asked. Terry Causton, I'm the proprietor. Please come to my office, Terry said. He turned to the goons. Mal, the pair of you, clean up here. What kind of place is this? I asked. A nightclub, he replied. What kind of nightclub opened so early? I asked. My dear, we're not open yet. Not in the, er, normal way. What the hell is that supposed to mean? He was clearly impressed to have the first team coach of the local football club in his office, the man who for many years had been captain of Mulcaster United, just in case you forgot that team, but at the same time he didn't wish to be too indiscreet. You have a very fit body, he said evading my question. It was clear from his words, his manner, that Terry Causton was no ladies man. So why the hard men, I asked, that was a serious assault gambling dear he said what illegal gambling you mean serious money stacks we get the big names from leeds mulcaster even birmingham he's my centre forward playing jimmy lawson he asked archly he plays roulette never poker he has other interests too like what i asked one doesn't like to say one had better say very quickly or one will find that one's office has been wrecked. The thought entered my mind that perhaps my centre forward, my number nine, my erstwhile striker might not be a lady's man either, but I dismissed the thought as quickly as it came into my head. I stood up. I reached over and lifted corston bodily across the desk. You're not going to beat me up are you? I would, if it wasn't for the fact you'd probably enjoy it, I said. I grabbed his arm and rolled up his short sleeve. There were blue marks and bruises. Drugs! Is that Jimmy's bag as well? He nodded his head abjectly. Come here often, does he? Often enough, Causton answered. So why the attack from your goons? I asked. Gangs from out of town, they want to take over the club. Shall I call for Jimmy? Causton asked. I shook my head. Whatever it was he was doing was at this time no business of mine. I had problems of my own. In any case, I'd be calling Jimmy Lawson into my office. Drugs would be a topic of discussion. More to the point, I would need to know why he felt he had to carry a knife. Pat Duffy had been stabbed to death. Pat knew and probably trusted Jimmy. For all I knew, at the fateful time, early in the morning of the previous day, Jimmy was at the club. Jimmy had the opportunity. He had the motive. Pat Duffy only needed more experience before he would take Jimmy's place as my first striker. And he had the means too, the knife he kept in his sheath against his leg. Opportunity, motive, means, the deck was stacked against Jimmy Lawson. He, more than Eddie Carberry, was to my mind suspect number one. There was one unanswered question, why had he left the knife in Pat Duffy's back? Could he have cleaned the knife blade of his fingerprints so that the first person to enter would do what was natural, remove the knife, leaving his dabs on the handle. That person was me. Suddenly Jimmy Lawson seemed a very dangerous young man. I thought of taking Causton's offer to confront Jimmy Lawson here and now, rough him up a bit, get him to confess and within 10 or 15 minutes Chief Inspector Shannon would be making an arrest and this time he'd be fingering the right guy. Language, Timothy. What's Jimmy doing right now, Terence? His Sunday name, Corston, like that. Snorting, dear. I could imagine Jimmy Lawson doing just that, buying courage from white stuff, before a big game, perhaps, or after a busy day with plenty of pressure, or after he'd ruthlessly killed a fellow player and placed the blame on his first-team coach and manager. I'm leaving now, Terence. I said. Any chance of getting out without being attacked and maimed? Oh, you mustn't go, he said. Not tonight. Why? I smiled. We've got Johnny Valentino. The name was vaguely familiar, but I couldn't place it. Male stripper, Terry said. Among the best. Lovely body. You've never seen Johnny Valentino? He looked at me as if I must be someone newly arrived from a distant planet. Not my cup of tea, I said, but live and let live, eh? Shame. Shame he said, drawing his knees up to his body. But if you ever decide to buy, know what I mean? If you mean the same white stuff that Lawson puts up his nose, include me out. Drugs is for mugs. He kept assuring me that I'd be welcome in the club any time. I could bring my wife, my girlfriends, members of the team. There was no way I would take Susan into a dump like that. I kept no girlfriends and asked for members of the team, apart from Lawson. Who would not be a member of the squad for very long. I didn't want my lads associated with drugs and illegal gambling. At the back door the youth was still poring over his magazine full of naked girls. I walked to where the Jag was still parked. A police patrol car cruised by. The driver craned his neck to get a view of the Jag. Why not? It's an attractive motor. It was good to get to the comfort of my car. Here I was for a short time alone. I could use the telephone safely. Now that I knew more about Jimmy Lawson, I felt sure I had the man responsible for the murder and my predicament. As I pulled away, I keyed in Harry's number. Harry Pickles, sports writer for the Lettersford Enquirer. Harry! Steve, how is everything? Fine Harry, a piece of news for you. I'm listening. I've placed Jimmy Lawson on the transfer list, as from tomorrow. What's the asking price, Steve? Free transfer, I said. You're still in charge, Steve, he said. That the message you want me to put across? Very much so, Harry. Thanks. My next call was home. Susan admitted she'd been worried. She would tried to get through on the mobile phone, but without success. I remembered I'd switched it off earlier. I apologized to her. When a man is married, he spends a lot of time apologizing. Not only when he's wrong but also when he's right. I promised I'd be home in about 40 minutes. I intended to keep my promise too. I was soon on the motorway travelling west. The automatic climate control wraps you in a cocoon of deceptive warmth. It's barely possible with the 3.2 litre engine and the 5 speed electronic automatic transmission to know that you're travelling at speed. Not my words Carol, the words of Top Gear magazine. I was making good progress towards exit 22 when I noticed a car behind me. His lights were flashing. Headlights and the light on the roof. Then he sounded his klaxon horn noisily. It was a police vehicle. No. There were umpteen cars exceeding the national speed limit of 70 miles an hour. It was only when the police car drew alongside me that I realised fully I was the object of the law's interest. A police officer, well wrapped against the wind and rain, Came to my vehicle. Would you get out, sir? Look, officer, I began. Please get out of your car, sir, he interrupted. I stepped out into the wind and rain and autumn cold. Millions of years ago, before man on earth, animals we now associate with tropical Africa roamed this area. They had to move or perished with the advance of the ice age. This particular evening, cold and raw, was no fit climate for man. beast. Watch out Attenborough. I followed the officer to the police car. I sat in the back seat. The second officer had fed my car number plate into a computer. What's your occupation? One asked. Football club manager, I said. First team coach. What club would that be, sir? The other asked. Lettersford Town, I answered with a sigh. And I wasn't the only one exceeding the speed limit. So you admit that you were exceeding the national level, sir? Yes, I replied testily. They knew full well who I was. Everybody in the north of England and far beyond must have read the newspapers, heard the radio or watched the Gogglebox. Hang on, Gogglebox didn't come on the telly for years. Anyway, finally they agreed that I might proceed. I pulled away, turned down the Saddleworth Road and soon joined the motorway going west. I reached home much later than anticipated. Susan was full of questions, the children were worried too. I spent an hour consoling them, assuring them I was fine. I finally sat down with Susan and Bill for the evening meal. I slept late but I woke very early the next morning. There was much to do but I did not skimp what is, in many respects, the most important meal of the day. I enjoyed breakfast of porridge, toast and marmalade and a banana with mixed dried fruit. A cup of chamomile tea was the perfect accompaniment. I decided to wear tracksuit and trainers. That's the kind of decision I make regularly. What I did not know on this Wednesday morning was it was a decision that was going to affect me crucially. Put it this way, it proved to be a matter of life and death. I took out the Jag. A motor car, driven at speed, slewed across in front of me, making it impossible for me to get out of the drive. Two men jumped out. I jumped out of the jag, I was unhappy, peed off, I've edited that. This is ridiculous, I said, more than that, it's harassment. Get in the car, the tall guy ordered. Now wait a minute, get in the bloody car, he repeated. No, I decided they were not going to shove me around, I'm a freeborn citizen of this country and I was not going to accept this. However, the guy had something to persuade me. He took a pistol from his pocket and pointed it at my gut. ''Now will you get in the motor car?'' He said, his voice soft but filled with menace. Chapter 7 The fat guy did the driving and I was in the back seat with the tall man. He didn't speak. I had the chance to study their faces carefully. They seemed to have no fear regarding recognition. This could mean only one thing. They were tough men who did not fear consequences. The driver kept to the motorways, he was a steady driver and he was careful not to exceed the speed limit. I suspected that this vehicle might be hired or perhaps stolen. The previous evening in my tired and frustrated state I had suspected that the police were harassing me. Why were they not harassing me now? There's never a police officer when you really need one. The driver moved smoothly onto the M60 motorway, the Manchester orbital then as smoothly onto the Trans-Pennine motorway. Both these roads I knew well. I travel this very route each weekday morning, except on those other days I'm alone and do not have a pistol stuck in my belly. I made a conscious decision to get these guys talking. Perhaps they'd picked up the wrong man. And where were they taking me? By this time I was convinced that neither was an officer of the Lire. That's my Inspector Clouseau impression coming out there. What's this about, fellas? There was no response. Where are we going? No response. What did they want me for? Why had they snatched me at gunpoint from the very gates of my own home? We know who you are, mister, the tall guy said. where had I heard that voice before? That soft rural accent? My heart leapt up. I didn't kill Pat Duffy. The police said different the driver said. The police have made a serious mistake. You've picked up the wrong man. You've got to turn back. The driver signalled to pull off to the left. This was the very junction where the police highway patrol had stopped me the previous evening. I hoped that a car would be on patrol now. My hopes were dashed by disappointment. The driver turned towards Saddleworth. He cruised slowly downhill to a village called Denshaw. At a crossroads, he slowed right down to study a number of signposts. Go left, the tall man said. The driver obeyed. The signpost was for Ledersford. You'd have been faster staying on the motorway, I said facetiously. What I did not feel, did not feel at all, was happy or humorous. These guys had left the motorway for a very good reason. They were looking for a piece of moorland, perhaps an unused path, well off the beaten track maybe even a lay by along a B road that had little traffic on it. They'd come over from Ireland to seek some form of revenge for what they believed had done to Pat Duffy, I no longer doubted that. Whether they were members of Pat's family or two guys hired to do the deed I did not know, it didn't really matter. What mattered was the realisation that for most people there's only one suitable way outside of the law to avenge a murder. That is by summary execution. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I looked at the gun. This is a subject about which I'm ignorant. For all I knew it could have been a Browning or a Mauser. Oh so maybe not that ignorant after all. The crucial knowledge was that it was a killing weapon. As if there's any other kind. Both men were assassins sent over the water to kill. To kill the person who had murdered Pat Duffy and according to the police and all the media I was that killer. The way the driver negotiated the hillside road proved to me that he had never been this way before. He looked to left and right, he was searching for a suitable place to stop. The knowledge that I was marked out for death set my mind racing. Nothing concentrates the mind more than the fear and knowledge of death. Right on top of the moorland plateau the tall man told the driver to stop. It was on such a bleak, lonely upland that I was about to die, and to die for a crime I had not committed. I felt within me the rise of an anger such as I have never before experienced. Yet, even as I experienced this great wave of anger and fear, I knew I had to stay cool. My salvation, if it were to come, rested in being, if possible, one step ahead of these guys. The trouble was they were armed and I was not. Get going, the man with the gun said. I stepped out of the voxel. I started to walk, slowly and steadily. I had no desire to rush to my death. This was a perfect place for a dead body to lie undiscovered for a very long time. Surface water was everywhere. My trainers were soon soaked through. At one stage, I almost fell headlong into a moorland pool. I stared into the depths and made out the skeleton of a sheep. The animal had fallen into the tarn and been unable to climb back up the slippery wet sides. If I'd fallen in, that too might have been my fate. I searched the vast expanse of peat and Sedge, looking in vain for the sight of another human being. The man with the gun urged me to keep going upward. The other man, the little fat guy, was finding the exercise a bit difficult. He was not in the best physical shape. I've read in books that people about to be executed lose control of their bodily functions. I could well believe this. For a brief moment I could sense it was going to happen to me. For a moment there was utter weakness in my legs and fear in my bowels. Not only was I going to die but I was going to die messily. Sorry for having your lunch. I ran as fast as the conditions would allow, moving from side to side hoping that I would provide a more difficult target for the gunman. My legs and lungs found new power, just as I'd often had to do when a big match went to extra time. There was a tremendous crack and a movement of air somewhere just above my head. The tall guy had fired the gun and missed. I continued to run crab-wise, sideways and upward. A second crack and a bullet struck the ground near to me. Then I reached one of the concrete chutes that takes and directs water down the side of the hill towards the reservoir below. I hurled myself against the concrete chute as if I was hurling myself low for a header towards goal. A third bullet struck the concrete. I did not hear a crack or an explosion but I saw briefly what the bullet did to the concrete. If it did that to a hard substance, what might it do to human flesh? I threw myself bodily over the rim of the concrete chute. I was carried swiftly down by the power of the water. The concrete was hard on my head and body. I tried as best I could to keep my head held up. The last thing I needed now was to lose consciousness. Every single second was painful but it was a pain I could bear because every second in that cold force of water was taking me further and further from the range of the killers. Where the chute ends and the water goes into the reservoir there are steps. The purpose of these steps is to splash the water and put oxygen in it. This makes water fresher. There you go, didn't know that did you? There were eight steps. I did not actually count them, but I felt every single one. Breathless, bruised, my body hit the freezing water. I struck my head heavily on one of the steps. I went under the water and struggled to the surface again. I was in danger of drowning. There seemed little that could save me now. It was, as my mother often says, out of the frying pan, into the fire. Chapter 8 A second time I surfaced, struggling for air, striving to retain consciousness. In times of extreme crisis, the human mind and body can withstand extreme pain. Faced with death, we are able to summon from within ourselves sources of power and strength we never dreamed we possessed. Hang on, is this the start of the Incredible Hulk? Anyway, I had this will to survive, to prove my innocence, to beat this absurd murder charge. I trod water this gave me a chance to look back, the two men were scrambling down the hillside. Their descent was much slower and more laborious than mine had been. Nevertheless they would finally reach the water. So there was no getting out of the water right away, there was only one real choice, to swim the length of the reservoir and be sure of escaping. I struck out strongly, if nothing else I reasoned, the exercise of swimming would raise my temperature the blood from my gashed head would clot in time. If it did not I was indeed trouble, yet there was no turning back. The cold of the water and the long swim before me were far preferable to dodging lethal bullets. Although I swam strongly, at least to begin with, the cold soon started to eat into the whole fibre of my being. Soon I was close to suffering from hypothermia. I swear my bones were chilled, right through to the marrow I was beginning to have serious doubts that I would make it. I had to keep going, even though my body raged, my muscles screamed with pain and told me no further progress was possible. Slowly, inexorably, although I was swimming at a reduced pace by now, the far bank was coming nearer and nearer. The sun had risen in the sky and I could feel a little heat on my face and head. It wasn't much, but it was welcome. There's a saying that the longest mile is the last mile. This certainly seemed true in my case. It wasn't a mile, but it certainly seemed as long. But I was getting closer. Now I was confident of survival. Soon I was able to stand up. I had reached the bank where a stream entered the reservoir. I wanted to drink deeply of the cold, clear water, yet dared not do so for fear of contamination. Although all this water was destined for human consumption in one form or another, It had not yet been through the cleaning processes that rendered it safe to drink. With all my present troubles and problems, I dare not risk a stomach or enteric infection of any kind. I reached the top of the hill, I was close to the road. There were rocks, standing stones, these had caught the morning sun and were quite warm. I stripped off my clothing. The cold and weight of wet clothes is no good for anyone in such conditions. I stretched the clothing out on the stones in an effort to dry them. While the clothes were drying, I could even see steam rising off them. I tried gentle exercises to maintain my body temperature. After a while, as soon as I was feeling warmer, I examined my body. The skin had been torn from my hands. My body was a mass of bruises and lacerations. My head was pounded, but there was no way I could examine the gash without the aid of a mirror. I felt it gingerly and discovered it had stopped bleeding, but I was careful not wanting to dislodge any scab that had formed, for to do so would have started the bleeding again. In my condition loss of blood was not conducive to temperature balance. Time meant nothing to me, I could have been there an hour, maybe longer, I even stretched out in the sun for a time. What any watcher would have thought, seeing me take an exercise and then lying naked in the sun I hesitated to think. No doubt they'd have considered I was a mad person. At that moment, I felt anything but mad. Just the opposite. I felt extremely happy. Cold, naked, bruised, lacerated, all these. And yet, I felt supremely happy to be alive. I'd been near to death, too damn near for comfort. But I'd returned from the abyss, and life seemed good once again. My clothes were not completely dry, in such conditions that... That time of year, it was asking too much for complete dryness. I had to dress again, damp though my clothes remained. All I had was a pair of underpants, the tracksuit trousers and the top. Nothing on my feet, neither socks nor trainers. And this was the condition in which I had to get back to Lettersford or go west towards Oldham. wonder where Mulcaster is? The direction I took depended entirely on the first form of transport to come my way. The vehicle to come along was a Ford Escort, an old couple were in the car, the man had a grey beard and the woman had grey hair. She was driving and driving slowly. They clearly left the house for a gentle ride in the hills, then it would be home for afternoon tea and scones. Or scones, you decide. I signalled and waved frantically, the woman did not stop. The man turned to peer at me as they went away, I must have looked an awful sight. Perhaps they were afraid I was some kind of escaped lunatic. I was angry but on reflection decided I could hardly blame them. People have been known to give lifts to mad people and eccentrics and to have suffered the consequences. The next vehicle was a larger car, the kind that reps have. There was a single occupant, a man. He did not seem to give me a second look as he swept by me. By now I was becoming frustrated. I'd left the house that morning early only to be kidnapped. The family at home and my agent expected me to have gone straight to the stadium. Inquiries to the stadium would prove I'd never turned up there. The previous day I'd reached the paranoid conclusion that the police were keeping tabs on me. So where were they now, when I really needed them? No sooner had that thought entered my mind than another vehicle came over the brow of the hill and into sight. It was a police car. I smiled happily this time I was truly pleased to see the boys in blue. In fact, it was a male constable driving and a female officer. The woman got out quickly and without questions or ado pushed me into the back seat. Soon we were moving in the direction of Ledisford. Doing a bit of hiking are we? The driver said cruelly. Does it look like it? I asked. It's a hosing down for you, the woman said forget about gentleness in the opposite sex, she was a copper first and a woman second. Just take a look at me, I said. Looks like you've had a rough time, the woman replied, but more in sarcasm than in sympathy. Are you both blind? I said. These bruises, the skin, lacerated from my hands. I was snatched. Snatched? The woman asked. Bloody kidnapped. In front of my own house, I said. The driver had been observing me through his rear-view mirror. Suddenly the light dawned. He pulled the car over to the left, and he turned in his seat. It's Steve, isn't it? It bloody well is, I said. I'm thirsty, worn out, in pain, and to cap it all, a tough game to prepare for. Fulton, on Friday, he said. Yes, and I need a bloody good striker, I retorted. That was the truth of it. I needed a striker for the important game. Fulton are also title contenders. We are lying third in the first division, just behind the two leaders. There are ten, possibly a dozen sides capable of winning promotion to the Premier League. It's still very open, we can't afford to slack. Every game is a needle match. The woman constable got out of the car and opened the boot. She found a blanket. With that round my shoulders I felt warmer and more comfortable than I had been since being snatched from my own doorstep. Any suggestions? I asked, meaning regarding my predicament of being without a good striker. There was no way Lawson was going to turn out for any side I managed. Pity about young Duffy, the driver said. Yes, I thought. He would always be one of those who never achieved his potential. He would remain an enigma. Take Lettersford up and you'll be the talk of the town, the driver said. I smiled. That was a nice play on words, talk of the town, the town. I already am the talk of the town, I said grimly, but for the wrong reasons. Everybody knows you didn't do it, the woman constable said. Everybody except Chief Inspector Shannon, I replied. Try telling him I'm innocent. You can tell him yourself, the driver said, we'll be at HQ in about 10 minutes. Shannon's office was small, there was paper everywhere, on his desk was a PC. A personal computer, not a police constable. I recalled a teacher at school telling us that very soon computers would be in a paperless office. In fact, they seemed to produce more paper than ever. There's a paradox here. I recounted for Shannon's benefit the events of the day. To save time I kept to the facts. My opinions as to the two Irishmen I kept to myself. I did not waste time complaining about my injuries and Shannon listened carefully occasionally taking notes. When he did speak it was to make a little joke. I told him that I'd swum the length of the reservoir. He warned me that it was forbidden to swim in water intended for human consumption and I responded by saying I consumed much of it myself. Would I be charged for not paying the water company? This was no time for jokes, even grim ones. Look, Shannon, Dave, everybody seems convinced I didn't kill Pat Duffy. Yes, he agreed. So Why was I charged? Tell me that." -"Precious," he said. -"Precious?" -"My superiors," Shannon replied. -"A high-profile case, stacks of media interest. My people want instant results." -"Instant mistakes," I said bitterly. My life turned upside down, my family hurt, my friends bewildered." -"You have broad shoulders, Steve." -"Sure. But what about my two children, eh? What about my kids?" Not to mention my mum and dad. You throw a pebble in a pond and the ripples spread out to the very edges. Ripples. That's a great song by Genesis. Check it out. Even if it's a small pond and a tiny pebble. Well Shannon had thrown a large brick into my world and the waters were still swirling round me and those I love and care for. You'll be wanting a car to the stadium, Shannon said. Once I'm off the hook I'll be wanting more than a car. I told him. My lawyers will be seeking blood, and it may be your blood. Is that a threat? He asked quietly. No, not a threat, that isn't my way. But you could announce I'm no longer under suspicion. I'll talk to the people upstairs, Shannon said. See what I can manage. We shook hands. I was provided with a pair of slippers, the only footwear, apart from police boots, that they could find to fit my large feet. Five minutes later, I was at the stadium. Chapter 9. All round the stadium, there's a perimeter fence. Against the gate, close to the barrier, members of the public had placed bouquets and wreaths of flowers in memory of Pat Duffy. I asked the police driver to stop. I got out. I examined the flowers in full view of media cameras. My intention was to show my respects in the most appropriate fashion. I'd have done the same if there had not been a camera in sight. In fact, however, The result was a media coup, those pictures went round the world and did me a great deal of good in terms of positive PR. Julie informed me that my chairman, Sir Lawrence Brook, was also anxious to talk to me. I enjoyed a warm bath, not a hot one or a cold one, warm. My body was bruised but that was nothing particularly new. In many a game I'd taken a lot of stick and dished out punishment as well. I think the worst time was in a tough game against Juventus real name there. A lot of money was riding on the result of that match. Afterwards I was a mass of bruises. The Continentals are supposed to avoid physical contact? Don't you believe it? Julie, I said once I was back in my office. Will you tell Sir Lawrence I'm free now? There was no need. Sir Lawrence entered at that very moment. Are you sure that you're okay, Steve? It was clear that the Chairman was concerned for my personal well-being, for my family and friends and Also for the future of the club, into which he'd invested a considerable amount of money, a large part of his personal wealth. I'd like promotion this season, Steve. I'll do my best, I told him. I'll be talking to Eddie and the squad very soon. I've told them all to report to the conference room, Sir Lawrence said. And then he added, what's this story in the morning newspapers that we've placed Lawson on the transfer list? It's not true, is it? It is true. I explained to Sir Lawrence the events in the nightclub the previous evening, the fight with the two bouncers included. Why on earth does a fella like Lawson need to carry a knife? Sir Lawrence asked. Beats me, I replied. Carrying a knife doesn't prove he killed Duffy, I said, but it proves he had the means. Have you informed Shannon? Not yet, I said. I'm dining with the Chief Constable this evening, he told me. Would you like to join us, perhaps? I shook my head and thanked him. but said my place after the events of the week was with my family. About the team sheet for Saturday, Sir Lawrence said. I'll take care of it, I said firmly, Well, we're going into the match against Fulton to win. Without a striker, he asked rhetorically. Lawson could play, even though he's on the transfer list. Over my dead body, I said vehemently. Sir Lawrence started to chuckle. I followed suit. My choice of words suddenly seemed funny. I telephoned Susan. She took my news with considerable calmness. She informed me that the Jag was safely back in the garage. That's the Jag, you know, 3.2 liter. Climate control. Automatic gearbox. Very nice. Then I spoke to Bill Brown. He was in his London office and as agitated as it's possible for an agent to be. It took some time to calm him. Finally, I called Julian. There's someone to see you, Julie said. I'm talking to nobody, I said, except the squad. If you want me, I'm in the conference room. The whole squad, players and non-players alike were present. Most of them stood up when I entered. I noted that an exception to that was Eddie Carberry. This isn't a question and answer session lads, I began. I want to fill you in as best I can, but as you'll understand, there are some things I can't say. The team sheet won't go up till later, I said. Everybody's in the frame unless they're injured or on the transfer list. This comment was greeted by a buzz of conversation. Jimmy Lawson was on his feet. Gaffer, he shouted. Later, Jimmy, I said. You can talk to me later. We need a centre forward for Friday, Eddie Carberry said. His comment received murmured support from some players. I'm working on that, Eddie, I replied. My initial feeling was to tell him to mind his own bloody business to tell him I was first team coach, the gaffer, and if you didn't like it, he could lump it. However, I've learned to distrust initial emotions. We'll be discussing the lineup together, Eddie. It can't wait forever," he said. It was only Wednesday and the game with Fulton was not until Friday afternoon. So why the rush, I wondered. Was it Eddie's immature wish to be seen as having the last word? Or was there a more sinister motive? Did he expect that I would not be around to make the selection? I'm not talking to the media again, I told them. I urge you not to talk to anyone on or off the record. Please respect that wish, lads. Any breach of that will be considered a serious infringement of club discipline. That brought a mixed response. Players and staff are able to make extra money from talking to the media, especially television. A short comment can put 60 or 70 quid in a person's pocket. Wonder what you get from Talksport? Anyway, I said a few more things, expressed my thanks again, assured them of my total commitment despite my problems and I strode out before a barrage of questions could assail me. As I left, there was a round of applause. I noticed that Martin Thornton, my skipper, had started the clapping. He was a good lad and would prove to be a mature servant of the club, if only we could retain his services. If we failed to win promotion, some players would be ready to move. I suspect that quite a few clubs had talked to Martin, or to his agent, and at least a couple of Premier sides would have liked to sign our young goalkeeper, the Finn, Mikael Lati, known to the lads as Mike. Remember, he's, he's Finnish. Like, you know, what's his face, Andy near me, who's not Finnish, he's only 28. Julie, I need a fleet car to take me home. Before you go, Steve, there's a girl wants to see you. Where is she? Sitting in reception, she's been there for hours. Well, I hope someone offered her a cup of coffee, or maybe some chamomile tea. I like that. Julie looks serious. She says, the father of her child is the guy who killed Pat Duffy. Chapter 10 The girl was a stunner. Even in an advanced stage of pregnancy, when many females do not look at their best, she was a remarkably pretty girl. This is hardly surprising when you come to think of it. Young football stars are athletic, committed to pleasure and socialising and rich. So it follows that they're going to attract talent. Bet you've not heard them called that for a while. Please sit down, I said. Can I get you anything to drink? Chamomile tea? No thank you. I prefer to say what I have to say and then leave. You claim to know who murdered Pat? I don't merely claim, she said. I know for certain. Then tell me, I urged her. Do you have a name? I didn't catch it. Michelle. And your surname? Just Michelle for the moment. Okay, Michelle, whatever you say. Please, she said, let me begin at the beginning. It was a co-educational private school. I was in the year below him, even then he was known to be a good soccer player. I began to wonder which of my squad had enjoyed the privileges of a private education. I couldn't think of anyone. Was this girl simply weaving a fantasy, or could it be that, in my short time at the club, I'd not come to know all my players well enough? Were you educated in Scotland? I asked. What makes you think that? Nothing, a shot in the dark. Of course, though I didn't tell the girl, I was thinking of Jimmy Lawson. After school, I went on to university, Michelle continued. Which one? Sunderland, she said. I took an upper second. Not a first, then, I said. There was only one first in my year. He went straight into football. Although it wasn't easy, given the demands of football, we continued to meet. A full relationship? I suggested quietly. We loved one another, she said. Loved? Does that denote the past? I learned that he was seeing other girls, and not always being discreet. Photographs in the newspapers and magazines, coming out of nightclubs with other girls, I don't always believe what you see in the press, Michelle. I remember one occasion when I went drinking with two of my Mulcaster mates, in the days when I was bending my elbow rather more than was good for my health and my soccer skills. As we were coming out, two girls draped themselves around me. Their dresses left very little to the imagination and a photographer was on hand. What the papers and later the magazines said did not worry me one bit. The problem was persuading Susan that I was with my mates and the whole episode was a sting. So why, Susan asked, were the others not in the photographs? I had to explain that with modern scanning techniques and a strong pair of scissors photographs can be falsified. Two people on a boat far away can be made to appear to be right next to each other. You don't believe me? It happened to Princess Diana and Dodie fired. Controversy there. The upshot was, Michelle continued, that we drifted apart. It wouldn't have mattered, but I was still in love with him. I am now in a kind of way. Carrying a candle for someone, it's common enough. I was becoming quite an accomplished counsellor. I must apply these skills to the squad members, if, that is, I continued as manager. If not, there's always dear Deirdre. But I couldn't mob forever, could I? So I took up with Pat. Well that surprises me, Michelle. Oh? why? Well, you are clearly an educated young woman. Sophisticated. University education. Pat Duffery is a quiet lad from a rural district of Ireland. Not your type, I would have thought. That was part of his attraction. He was soft and gentle. No pretenses. No big talk. No bragging about his sexual prowess. A thoroughly nice young man, in fact. Yeah, but we were not in love. We didn't have an affair. I believe you, I said. But the other guy became jealous, right? Insanely jealous, Michelle replied. Especially when I became pregnant. But if you didn't have an affair, how could Pat be the father of your child? He wasn't. It was... There was a knock at the door. I struck the desk with my fist, angry that Michelle had been interrupted at such a crucial moment. The person at the door did not wait for me to ask them in. Steve? Oh, sorry, I didn't know. What is it, Eddie? Team selection for Saturday's game. You said that... This isn't the best time, Eddie, I said. Tomorrow, perhaps. You are the big boss, Eddie replied slowly, and his tone implied that he didn't expect me to remain in post much longer. Not that Eddie would benefit. There was no way Sir Lawrence would choose Eddie as my successor, and whoever took my place, an outsider would almost certainly not see a plodder like Eddie Carberry as part of his push for premier status. I expected him to leave. I wanted to spare him the indignity of throwing him out. Eddie stared across at Michelle. Hello Michelle love, how are you? Fine Eddie, fine, Michelle said and her voice reflected my own impatience at this interruption. Take good care of our baby love, he said and he laughed in a vulgar way. Thinking this remark very funny indeed. I was completely gobsmacked. Eddie Carberry, the father of Michelle's child. So I'd been right in the first place. Eddie had killed Pat Duffy. I recalled what Julie had said earlier. She says the father of her child is the guy who killed Pat Duffy. Julie's exact words just before she showed Michelle into my office. Eddie laughed again, then looked at me with contempt before he left the room. I ought to have gone after him, but the surprise kept me rooted to my chair. Eddie Carberry and… and… and you? Pardon? He just said he was the father of your child. Michelle laughed scornfully. Grow up, Steve, she said. That was Eddie's idea of a joke. Some joke, I replied. It's the best he can manage. So how do you know Eddie? She hesitated briefly before she answered. At parties, out with members of the team. Clubbing, I said, snorting the white stuff. Mainlining too, Michelle said, one of them at least. God, I said angrily, no wonder there was a string of poor results. Right Michelle, time's up, or nearly so. You were just about to tell me the name. The door burst open again. Had everyone taken leave of basic good manners? It was Martin Thornton, skipper of the team. The young player in whom I'd placed my faith, the door burst open again. Had everyone taken leave of basic good manners? It was Martin Thornton, skipper of the team. The young player in whom I'd placed my faith. I'm busy right now Martin, I said. I assumed he'd come to see me, but it was then I noticed he wasn't even looking in my direction. His gaze was fixed on Michelle. There was anger blazing in his eyes. Eddie said you were here, Martin spat. Well, he would, wouldn't he?" Michelle replied. There was a brief smile on her face, but it was not a smile born of pleasure. ''You rotten he shouted. He moved towards Michelle in a menacing way. I stood up, ready to get between them, but because of my bruises, I couldn't move as quickly as I wished. Martin grabbed Michelle by the shoulders. He started to shake her, as if she were a rag doll. All the while he was shouting obscenities. The message was that Michelle, of all the young women in the world, was not included in Martin's top ten. I'd never seen him like this before. I grabbed hold of Martin. I placed him in an arm lock. Michelle was a cool customer. She brushed herself down, maintained her cool and looked straight at him. What are you trying to do, Martin? She asked. Are you trying to kill your baby? Chapter 11. Alerted by the shouting. Julie entered the room Martin Thornton yelled at me to release him Michelle was giving Martin a piece of her mind I was trying to silence both of them and add to the hubbub it was bedlam in there Julie get me some mineral water with you what is it with mineral water at that moment I would happily have settled for something stronger but when you get older you got to look after yourself that much better I wanted to keep in trim for as long as was possible and sensible So, mineral water it was. Oh, well, that explains it. Martin, as you can see, Michelle is having a baby. It's pretty obvious, he said. You know Michelle, don't you? We attended the same school, Martin replied. Are you, as Michelle says, the father of the child? Of course he is, Michelle interrupted. As far as I know, Martin answered almost flippantly. Michelle flared angrily. Of course you are, Martin. There's been no other man. Not even our gifted young Irish striker, Martin said sarcastically. I was beginning to understand that Pat Duffy was not universally liked. Envy, even of another person's talents, can be a corrosive emotion. That's a good name for a band, particularly from Newcastle. Corrosive emotion. I had simply not expected such jealousy of Martin Thornton. A young man in love, or consumed with jealousy, cannot always control his emotions as you should. So you didn't like Pat Duffy? I said. Couldn't stand him, Martin said. Would it be true to say that you hated him? His guts, Martin replied. Enough to stab him in the back, I asked. Give me a break, gaffer. Someone killed Pat, and he wasn't me, lad. Well, nobody had a good word for him, Martin added. What did he do wrong? He was a thief. This wasn't the Pat Duffy I thought I knew. Why did he always need money? Who knows? Martin replied. You should know for one Martin, you're the skipper of the side. Well that sort of thing, it's an individual's business, Martin said. Not if it affects the way he plays or his relations with other players. It isn't easy to pass a board to a player having it off with your wife. Or steals your girlfriend. Martin said, staring at Michelle. Oh, you make my point, Martin. Bad feeling over Michelle affected your relationship with Pat Duffy. One final question and then we must break, I said. Break? It's not a boxing match." Michelle! She looked up at me, her face pretty intelligent and innocent, although I knew that of those attributes the third didn't apply. Yes, Steve? I swear from the provocative flash of the eyes, the flickering of her eyelashes, the twist in her lips, the tone of her voice as she uttered those two words, with the stress on my name, that she was giving me the old come on. When you came here, you told Julie that the murder of Pat Duffy was the father of your child, right? What the hell? Martin Thornton blurted out. Isn't that what you said, Michelle? And if I did? It was a serious accusation, Michelle. And it wasn't true, was it? I had to gain entry somehow, Michelle said softly. I sighed deeply, out of physical and mental weariness as well as from frustration. It was Wednesday evening and I had still not discovered who had killed Pat Duffy. I stood up and stretched, you know, a bit like the, the mice on the Barrel organ from Bagpus. I told Martin and Michelle to try and sort things out together. I gestured toward the door Martin and Michelle stood up in her case with more agility than I would have expected from a woman so far gone with child still what did I know of such things the door closed behind the young couple a pair of star-crossed lovers I said to Julie she looked surprised that sounds clever Steve you have a way with words or oh, not me old Bill Shakespeare since when did you when I was at school I replied Romeo and Juliet was a set text so when you reach home you'll sit and read Shakespeare or tonight it'll be EastEnders on telly I said and then a good night's sleep I locked the office door as we left see you tomorrow morning Julie said or one last thing get a message round to all the squad training tomorrow will do Julie said she's a good PA and I knew I could rely on her bit like Alan Partridge and Lynn. The fleet car was waiting round the back. The driver made a careful exit. The rain was starting again. As he headed for the motorway, I rehearsed the events of the day. I found myself thinking about the job of being manager. I had to admit that I loved it. Yet, when you take on such a post, sacrifices have to be made. It ought to be a job for monks. There's little enough time for the family. There are pressures from players, from non-playing colleagues, from the supporters club, from the chairman, especially the chairman in many clubs and from the media who can assist with positive coverage or begin to undermine you in many ways. Are you listening Adrian Durham? It's hard to relax. The last thing you need to add to this burden of pressures is a murder charge and harassment on the road home from speed cops. I warned the driver to be careful of his speed. As it happened, I needn't have worried if the police were still watching my movements and I would have been very surprised if they were not. They were watching for a Jaguar XJ8, don't forget 3.2 litre, automatic gearbox, cruise control, very nice, comes in a range of colours. At the moment I was sitting back in the comfort of a top of the range Peugeot, don't know much about that brand though. I arrived home safely and quickly, it was the return of the prodigal son. My wife had a meal ready, traditional English, beef, vegetables, roast and mashed potatoes and thick brown gravy. She knows what I enjoy. The children were all over me. I watched EastEnders. Everybody seemed to be moaning about their lot, as seems usual in that soap. Is nobody in Albert Square ever happy or contented with their lot? They should try a week of being a soccer coach and manager. They'd soon be counting their blessings. I asked Susan not to accept any telephone calls. For the next 12 hours, I was incommunicado. It's a great song by Marillion that. Not available. Offline. Fast asleep. Not to be disturbed. Soon, I fell into a deep sleep. At 3 o'clock, I woke with a start. I felt very thirsty. Treading gingerly, anxious not to disturb Susan or the children, I went to the kitchen. As I did so, I thought I heard a noise. I did not switch any lights on, I know the house well enough. That was my mistake. As I looked inside the fridge, suddenly feeling peckish as well as thirsty, I heard a sound behind me. I turned. Someone was in the kitchen with me, and that someone was armed. I could see the weapon clearly enough by the light from the refrigerator. Who the hell are you? I shouted. Chapter 12. Before I had the chance to make my move, the intruder had made for the door. A single shot brought me to my senses. Forgetting my bruises, I dived forward. I took him by the legs, just below the knees. As he crashed to the floor, he released a second shot. It struck the refrigerator and came off at an angle. The bullet whistled past my head. He struck out with the gun. The metal glanced off the side of my head. It was enough to send me sideways. Swiftly he jumped to his feet. Despite the bullet which had struck it, the refrigerator light was still working. That was now an advantage to my opponent. He stood in the half light, legs slightly apart and aimed the gun straight at me. I dived to one side, fast, and slammed against the fridge door. The light was no longer visible. The bullet just missed me. I threw myself at him and grabbed his right hand, the one that was holding the gun. I twisted hard. He let out a yell of pain. The gun clattered on the kitchen tiles. He fought back like a tiger. He kicked at my knees. I moved to the side to avoid the kick. He dived forward but instead of seeking to take me by the shoulders or the torso, he came in with what was a sliding tackle. My knees buckled. Surely a red card. He moved his forearm swiftly and struck my nose. And I saw stars. Help was at hand however. At that very moment I heard the loud claxon horns approaching police cars. Why, I have often wondered as I watch movies, do the police warn people of their approach? It alerts them that it's time to escape. This occasion was no different. He was gone before the police had scaled the gates. Scrapings were taken from under fingernails. Police scientists can build a case from the most unlikely of material. They also had the intruder's gun and that was certain to reveal evidence. There was yet another long session of questions and answers. Forty minutes after the arrival of the police, another vehicle turned up. In it were Chief Inspector Shannon and Detective Sergeant Widderson. I explained everything in detail. What seemed like small details can be crucial, Shannon said. Well, your people will be able to find him through DNA, won't they? Yes, if the man's DNA is known, Widderson replied. Take samples from everybody who might be a suspect, I said. The guy came here to kill me. You don't think he might just have been a burglar? Shannon suggested. He was a damn clever one. He evaded all our security. Finding out who it was, that's a matter for the Cheshire force, Woodison told me. We've been active over the past couple of days. It's looking very much as if we shall not be charging you with murder, Shannon said. You already have, I growled. The charge is likely to be withdrawn. I wanted to smile. If all charges against me were dropped, and Shannon would have some explaining to do. By 7 o'clock in the morning the house was clear of police in uniform and it was time to go to work and I was shattered. Two uniformed men had been kept at the gate just in case. But I felt, and Susan agreed with me, that this was shutting the stable door after the horse had bolted. Perhaps I was foolish but I felt I had to go to the stadium. There was training that morning and the home game against Fulton was only 36 hours away. There was the important matter of selecting the team and of deciding who, if anyone, was to be the central striker. On the way over the Pennines I listened to the radio, talk sport hopefully. There was nothing new or important. Another small earthquake in Turkey. In Ledersford, someone had broken into the territorial armoury and stolen a number of weapons including two high velocity rifles and some ammunition. Terrorist groups were the suspects and the police were following their lines of inquiry there was no mention of the item I wanted to hear, that I had been cleared of all suspicion of Pat Duffy's death. I arrived at the stadium well before anyone else, even Julie. She arrived at about the same time as the Royal Mail van, bringing our post. We have a few sacks of mail every day. One letter was from Pat Duffy's parents, asking when their son's body would be released for burial. That was a matter for the coroner, of course. Nevertheless, dictated a short letter of explanation you look tired Steve Julie said I told her the events of the night someone's out to get you she said it seems that way you should have stayed at home there's the game with Fulton tomorrow it's important not more important than your safety Steve nothing's more important than a person's life I had to come in I said it was that or go mad if nothing else I should sleep like a baby tonight. Getting a good night's sleep before a crucial game isn't always easy, so it would be well for me to return home later in the day, dog-tired. I worked the squad for a long time. We usually quit at about one o'clock, but I kept them hard at it until two in the afternoon. There was hardly any let-up. I decided on a 4-4-2 strategy. Eddie Carberry questioned this. Are you playing Jimmy? He asked. No way, I replied. Then why the two strikers up front? Because Fulton's two central defenders are getting on a bit. So's Arsenal's defence, Eddie sneered. But they do well enough. Go you can tell this was written in nineteen ninety nine, can't you? I think a couple of good lads with something to prove could get in behind them, I said. And that is what we practised, front runners, getting in behind defenders. I kept my eyes on all the squad and gave particular attention to Andy Kirk and Danny Drever. Neither one is yet 18, they're promising players but have yet to win their spurs. At one o'clock when the lads thought I was going to bring training to a close, I told them we were going to play five a side and that in the afternoon I would be pinning the probables on the notice board back at the club. Right, I shouted, away the lads. They played their hearts out, each one as he was called. So far we've not been defeated at home and Christmas is not that far away, if our away form matched our home form, we'd be streaking away from the others, as Sunderland did under Peter Reid last season. Back at the stadium, I enjoyed a frugal lunch of beef and salad. Frugal? Tiredness had been forgotten. I felt fit again and motivated. I was ready to go into battle next day. It was essential that we defeat Fulton. In order to win the three points, I'd settle for a 1-0 victory. It would be better for morale all round though if we could win resoundingly. Morale at the club and in the town as a whole had taken a battering this week. Add to that the effect on my family and the family of Pat Duffy, and you get some measure of the damage the murderer had caused. And he was still at large, waiting, possibly, to make his second strike. Although I'd been busy with training and tactics until well into the afternoon, my brain had not stayed inactive. You cannot switch off the brain and the workings of the mind just like that. A number of possibilities were forming in my mind. They all added up inexorably to a premonition, a deep-seated fear. The murderer was going to seek his second victim on the Friday, either before or during the game with Fulton, and I was likely to be a second victim. Chapter 13, finally, the last chapter. Friday arrived. It was a day off for the first team, there was no point in last minute training. They needed to rest their muscles after the exertions of the previous day. I'd asked them to sleep in and then arrive at the stadium two hours before kickoff at seven. I followed my own advice and also slept in, right through to midday in my case. When I finally surfaced, Susan told me the telephone had been ringing on and off all morning. For now, once again, I was feeling pretty good. The adrenaline was flowing already. It always does before a match, whether I'm playing or being as most managers are. An agitated spectator. The game was being televised. The stadium's well set up for this. I gathered they were not using all the TV gantries that evening and the airship which takes those spectacular aerial shots was not being used either. On my arrival Julie informed me of the people wanting to talk to me. First of all I spoke to the TV people from Sky. Oh not that Jim White again. I tried to say all the right things. I talked about the composition of the team and how much rested on the broad shoulders of my young skipper, Martin Thornton. I made no secret of the fact that I was playing Van Niekirk and Danny Drever up front. Although untested for a complete game within the First Division, both, I said, worked well of each other in training and in practice matches, and today was as good a time as any to blood them. That possibly was not the best term to use in the circumstances. Blood had been a part of my life ever since the killing on the previous Monday. The topic would have been broached in any case. There was no way a reporter worth his salt would fail to seek a comment on the killing. Oh, this has been a tough week for everyone, I said in measured tones. My family, Pat Duffy's family, all people of the club, you loyal supporters. And yourself, Steve, the reporter said. The reporter said, sure, but I'm confident of two things, my innocence and that the real murderer will be found. The next one to see was Harry Pickles. That was a brief one. Harry has the good sense to appreciate just how busy I always am, especially on match day. ''Everyone's behind you, Steve,'' he said. Oh, ''Not quite everybody, Harry,'' I replied, ''but don't quote me on that.'' ''Well, you don't meet the front page today,'' he said, ''not of the Inquirer, at any rate.'' Oh, ''That's a relief,'' I said. ''Who's my lucky successor?'' ''The armory. Somebody broke in, took some weapons.'' I'll cut that on the radio I said terrorists Shannon doesn't think so Harry told me seems to be the work of one man somebody with inside information after Harry had left my office Julie came in to tell me it was time for a chat with the chairman so next I went to see Sir Lawrence how you feeling today Steve Sir Lawrence asked me as I entered his office firing on all cylinders Lawrence I said can we win today all games are winnable I told him. And all can be lost, he said. You're youngsters. I hope they can fire in some goals. News of Van Niekirk and Drever being preferred up front had obviously reached him. What are your plans regarding Lawson? No change. Free transfer. Eddie Carberry? Him and Much out by next week. You've no objection, have you? None, Sir Lawrence said. Carberry's done well to survive as long as he has. He can go back to playing at soldiers. Soldiers? I asked. Yeah, he's a sergeant in the army. I was puzzled. How could this be? The Territorial Army, Sir Lawrence said. Carbury's done well to survive as long as he has. He can go back to playing at soldiers. Soldiers? I asked. Yeah, he's a sergeant in the army. I was puzzled. How could this be? The Territorial Army, Sir Lawrence said. Weekend soldiers. They still exist, you know. Not my cup of tea. I replied. I never have any free weekends. I returned to my office. Martin Thornton was in the corridor outside. Gaffer! I'll see you with the squad, I said. Two minutes please, Gaffer. So I ushered him inside the office. He apologised for being rough with Michelle. I told him not to worry as I'd already forgotten the incident. There's one thing you should know, Gaffer. Please, Martin, concentrate on the game. Michelle's father. You mean the father of her child? No, her father. It's... I shut him up there and then. I shouted loudly. I don't want to know. Do you hear me? I don't bloody want to know. He turned on his heel and stalked out. He was an angry young man. If you could channel that anger and aggression against Fulton in a couple of hours, then we'd be in with a good chance. As for who was father of whom, who was related to whom, I simply didn't at this stage want to know. It would, as it turned out, have been easier if I had known. Forty minutes before kickoff I went to the dressing room to talk to the squad. Among them was Jimmy Lawson. He was changing just like the rest of them. I was amazed at his optimism. Did he really think he might be a last minute substitute? It doesn't work like that. Subs have to be named. I tried to be brief and to the point. This was a crucial game. It had been a tough week for everyone connected with the club and the best way to tackle things was to go out and win. Three points for the club, three points for Pat Duffy. I tried to be brief and to the point. This was a crucial game. It had been a tough week for everyone connected with the club, and the best way to tackle things was to go out and win. Three points for the club, three points for Pat Duffy. I reminded them that when Pat's body was released for burial, every member of the squad would be expected to attend. Eddie followed me out. He was carrying a long bag. Usually, he carries a small backpack. Playing cricket later, Eddie? I asked. It was, in fact, a cricket bag. I used to be a useful cricketer, he said, and he strode away without another word. There was time for me to take a shower. Attached to my office is an ensuite bathroom and shower. Whilst I was under the shower, the telephone rang. It was reception. Bill Brown was there, trying to get in. I dried off, changed into my suit, and went straight to reception. There's a locked door there. Few have a key. Not even squad members and certainly not agents can gain entrance. Come to the office, Bill. I'm pleased to see you. We sat down. Julie brought in soft drinks. Inspector Shannon wants to see you, Steve, she said. He can wait till after the match, I told her. Tell him that. I turned to Bill again. Bill, I'm glad you're here. I think I've cracked it. I really do. At 10 minutes before the hour, Eddie Carbury and Jim Mutch took their places along with the physio in the dugout. I went to the director's box and I spent the first half there, changed half time into my tracksuit and spent the second half close to the touchline. Five minutes before kickoff, the three officials left the tunnel. Music was played on the loudspeaker system. And now, will you welcome the two teams, ladies and gentlemen, Fulton Football Club and for Town. There's a potential new career for me. The announcer stretched the words out for maximum effect. There was a rousing cheer as the team strode out onto the park. That field of dreams, of triumphs and disappointments. Martin Thornton held his head high. Our Finnish keeper, Mikhail Lati, followed him. The substitutes took their places behind Eddie Carberry and Jim Much. For the pair of them, though they did not know it, this was their final match on our bench. I was relieved to learn that Jimmy Lawson was not amongst the substitutes. The first 20 minutes were all Fulton. They launched a ferocious barrage of attacks. Martin Thornton assumed, as he should, full responsibility for organising our defence. Their attacks were relentless. Mikhail Lati was shouting and swearing in his own language and in English. He brought off more saves in the first 20 minutes then Tomaszewski for Poland against England in 1973. Our lads did everything except get out of their own half. I could see the effect he was having. Well before half time, it looked as if none would have the strength to return to the field for another forty-five minutes. Then my telephone rang. Usually during a match I switched the mobile off. This time I'd arranged for Bill Brown to ring me if he saw anything he thought I should know. I left my seat and went to a relatively quiet spot near a concrete upright. He's left his place, Bill said. I walked fast to the tunnel. It would have been foolish to run. I knew the TV cameras would pick up any response, any signs of anxiety. That I was the centre of media attention that evening, I did not doubt. Once inside, I wasted no time, though remembering there were TV cameras in the tunnel too. I went straight to the dressing room. I found Jimmy Lawson sitting there why aren't you watching the match I asked looking round as I spoke he gave me a stare of pure hatred I looked down at his leg did he still have a knife there I needed to be careful I turned wait he commanded I turned Lawson had the knife in his hand put it away Jimmy I said as calmly as I could I started to walk toward him keep back he warned I shook my head more in sorrow than anger I know you didn't kill Pat Duffy I know that I said soothingly I reached and grasped his wrist I levered the knife from his grasp at the moment I was holding the knife Bill Brown rushed in followed closely by Chief Inspector Shannon and other police officers Jimmy was led away he was close to weeping his whole world was about to fall apart I have an escort Shannon said a marksman Taylor, a police marksman dressed in full protective gear and armed with a rifle, stepped into the dressing room. Shannon offered me the use of a bulletproof vest. I'm going to change into my tracksuit, I said. I always do. Put the vest under the tracksuit top, Shannon advised. I looked round the dressing room. The cricket bag was not there. That confirmed my suspicions. I was in grave danger. We went to the office. Shannon and Bill accompanied me. As I took off my jacket, I found the letter in the pocket. Remember that letter? It's about 100 pages ago. The letter which Pat Duffy had received, and which he had given to me on the morning of his death, which, amazingly, was only five days earlier. You don't have to go out, Shannon said. I strongly advise against it. He may not have a go, I said. My gut tells me he will, Shannon answered, and in the second half. During the halftime break I talked to the television people, a quick reaction to the game so far. No opportunity to say anything profound but, as Bill Brown reminded me, money in my pocket and his too of course. I used all kinds of clichés, we'd weathered the storm, there was no way to go except up, a game of two halves, we wanted a result. That 15 minutes gave the police the chance to do a thorough sweep of the stadium, they had no success. Others, some in civilian clothing, some in uniform, checked the terraces and stands. Shannon had told them to pay particular attention to the back rows. The producer in the TV room had been asked to keep an eye on all screens and try and get in amongst the crowd too. The teams ran out for the second half. I would not had time to say even a brief word to our lads. As they came down the tunnel I was waiting. I shook every one by hand. This usually happens at the end of a tough game but now... I had to let them see I was with them, willing them to victory. The crowd was by now aware of a strong police presence. Perhaps some thought Fulton had attracted a group of troublemakers and they were weeding them out. Same old Fulton. The reality was very different. I took my place on the bench next to Jim Mutch. He nodded but did not speak. The physio and the stretcher bearers were ready too. This could prove a busy half for them as our team showed signs of fatigue and injury. My presence on the bench was not strictly necessary, perhaps I was risking my life for no good reason. There was nothing to be gained from Susan being made a widow and the children orphaned at impressionable ages, but I had something to prove. I was placing my life on the line so that others might be saved, for when a person is killed once they will try a second time, if they have been driven mad or if they believe they are about to be unmasked. The pieces of the puzzle had come together, all clues At my assistant first team coach. He hated me for what he rightly thought I was doing to his career. He hated Pat Duffy because of his Eddie's experiences as a soldier in Ireland. That was sheer prejudice, of course, but prejudiced people do not go out to kill. What had driven Eddie Carberry over the edge was his mistaken belief that his stepdaughter, his beloved Michelle, fresh from university with an honors degree on the cusp of a good career, had been made pregnant by Pat Duffy. When the Territorial Army Armory, that's a tongue twist, had been broken into and by someone who knew his way about, that was the final piece of the puzzle. Eddie had taken several weapons to make it appear a terrorist job, but what he really needed was a high velocity rifle. Now he was somewhere in the stadium, armed, a trained soldier, peering through telescopic sights. He was consumed with hatred, ready to kill again. And I was the intended victim. All this was in my mind when events on the field took a bad turn. Fulton's number nine, Gerhardi, was in front of our goal ten yards out and only Larty to beat. Larty went to his left. Gerhardi blasted the ball to his right. There was a stunned silence in the stadium. I thought we'd be rocked on the back foot, but their goal acted as a spur to our lads. One of our central defenders, Mossley, latched onto a ball out of defence. He sprinted down the wing. Just as he was about to sling the ball over to the centre, he slipped. The ball trickled tamely out of play, so I went over and retrieved the ball. This was no time for Mosley to make an elementary mistake. As I picked up the ball, there was a terrific explosion. I fell back, sure I'd been hit with a bullet. The ball disintegrated in my hand, and the crowd burst out into spontaneous laughter. They thought the ball had merely burst as I was handing it back to Mosley. Once the police knew the direction of the shot, they were able to converge on Carberry's hiding place and arrest him. He'd found a place on a TV gantry that was not being used that evening. Luckily for me, his shot from the rifle had been less than perfect. he put up a bit of a struggle, I was told by Shannon later, but he knew he'd lost. During a lull in the game when it seemed Danny Drever might be injured, I passed a message to Martin Thornton. I told him all was well. Now get on with it and win, I said. You bet, Gaffer. The whole side celebrated. They played as if for fun and not merely for three important points. It was truly a game of two halves, for Fulton hardly mounted an attack in the second half. We ran out winners by 4-1. Two from Andreas van Niekerk, two from Danny Drever. At the end, the team hoisted me high on their shoulders and did two laps of the pitch. Then they stood in front of the main stand and presented me as if I were a trophy to Sir Lawrence and the board of directors. The rest of the evening's a bit of a blur. Just for a few hours I went off the water wagon. It was champagne all round. Both Bill and I were unfit to drive. Bill stayed in a Leathersford hotel. I was taken home in the Jag, but I wasn't driving. Probably gave me a chance to appreciate how good the car is from a passenger point of view as well. Jaguar, are you listening? Tell me, Susan said, who broke into the house? Was that Eddie Carbury? I don't know, but Shannon will find out. And those two kidnappers? No connection with Carberry. They wanted to avenge Pat Duffy's death. Let's go to bed, Susan said. It's been a long day and a long week. I'll switch off the mobile, I said. At that very moment it rang. Steve? Yes, Bill? You are right, mate? I've just had a thought. We can sue the police for wrongful arrest. Should be worth a packet. Don't you ever consider anything except money, Bill. Why should I? It's my business. I'm your agent. Good night, Bill, I said, laughing. I switched off the mobile, and Susan and I were not disturbed again. The End
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods,